KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Good evening, or good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you might be as you're listening to this radio broadcast. It is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to it live on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's listener-sponsored community radio. Find it on the web, kopn.org. And uh, you can also find me on the web at Mike Hagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N dot com, C-O-M. All right. All right, it is Mike, and it is, uh, what is it today? Memorial Day. It's the 12th, God, I don't know, what's the date? I don't even know anymore. I have a hard time paying attention to the calendar, but I think it's the 29th, actually, of May. And uh, June, just around the corner. Tonight, we've got a wonderful show for you. We've got Vincent Bridges, who will be joining me in just about 55 minutes or so. 
But before then, we'll do uh, a few other things, okay? All right, quickly, thanks to Debbie. Wonderful stuff on Free Range Radio Theater, as always, 10 o'clock until 11 o'clock. Setting things up nicely for Orbit every week. And uh, Debbie, I love you. Thanks for a great show, as always, okay? And I think you can find her on the web, by the way, at, uh, well, just as always, you know, just consult your local search engine, but I think it's freerangeradio.com. Maybe freerangeradiotheater.com. But anyway, check her out. I love it. Okay, uh, also, um, Kelvin and Jason doing it up before that. Tech Radio was amazing tonight, actually. The guys on Tech Radio, thanks to John and Justin, first of all, uh, for great info, as always. But they had a great show tonight, and they were talking about net neutrality and uh, this whole you know, this thing's been in the news a lot lately. People concerned about the the freedom of the web and, and whether, uh, you know, we have to fear uh, people taking over the web, basically, and charging different amounts of money uh, for different levels of access and all this sort of thing. Anyway, John made me feel a little bit better tonight uh, about the whole thing, or actually sort of reinforced something that I believe beforehand, and that is this, simple, no one will control the web. It's like trying to control a dream. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the web was designed, you know, for workarounds. It was designed to be decentralized. It was designed uh, to not let anybody do exactly what everyone is talking about doing. And it's interesting that nobody is actually doing it. Everyone is talking about, talking about doing it, but, but nobody is doing it, uh, really. Uh, you know, if you start getting charged for using particular websites or whatever, you know, I don't know. I would say that you should immediately drop your internet service provider and find another because that's the way it has worked in the past. There have been people that have tried it a couple of times, actually, I think, in the past. And the guys um, from Cosmic Waves Radio are, are probably very interested in and, and probably more enlightened about this whole topic than I am, quite frankly. And Carrie and I have spoken about it, actually, uh, sort of briefly a few weeks ago. But anyway, as I bring them up, I need to say a, a wonderful thank you to Cosmic Waves Radio while we're thanking people uh, on the web, cosmicwavesradio.com. And they're the ones that are providing the stream for tonight. So not only is Radio Orbit heard in the, or the local and regional listening area of KOPN, which is, you know, mid-Missouri and the, you know, the area around here, but we're also live on the Internet. And so anyone, anywhere in the world, if they're aware and awake, uh, they can listen to Orbit. Uh, so thanks to Cosmic Waves Radio for making that happen. And Carrie, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a wizard. There are a few wizards involved in this whole uh, undertaking, by the way. One of them's name is Larry Norager, and he's the web wizard. And he does things with his fingers on a keyboard that, well... I don't know. I'm trying to think of, a, of, a, of an analogy that other people might, that we could compare it to. Maybe Satriani on a guitar. That's what Larry does with, uh, you know, a keyboard. And Carrie at Cosmic Waves Radio just pulled another miracle. I don't know what he did, but I, I, I was having an impossible time connecting to the web uh, tonight to get the stream going. Literally, it was, uh, it was 10.58 p.m., and I couldn't get the stream going, and usually it's no problem. Well, it turns out that I went on the web and I went to Cosmic Waves Radio, like I normally do, and I looked at Channel 2, which is what I broadcast on every Monday night. And it turns out that there was somebody else broadcasting <clears throat> on Channel 2 and was already using 
the frequency basically, right? Um, the the uh, the IP address as it is on on uh, internet radio. So it was already occupied. So I thought, oh man, there must have been a, a problem with the schedule or something. And and this cat doesn't know that uh, you know this is my my slot uh, on Monday nights. So just when I complete the thought, my cell phone rings, which is just about out of battery power, by the way. I mean, it's a miracle that the thing even rang. So my cell phone rings. I pick it up. I didn't recognize the number, which is good, because I was hoping it was some angel. And uh, it turns out it was Carrie from Cosmic Waves Radio. Now, he's on the East Coast, I think. We didn't even talk where he was tonight. He's, he's, a, he's a mover and a shaker, as it were. But anyway, it's at least 10 after midnight there. And he's listening and aware of everything that's going on and uh, told me that this guy was not supposed to be on the waves. It sort of hijacked the, uh, uh, the signal. Uh, the IP address again, as it were, and that he was going to pull like this, uh, uh, it's just a magic trick. And he said, okay, I'm glad I got you on the phone. He said, can you be in front of the computer uh, that you normally use to connect? And I said, yes, I can do that. And so I went into the production room that we have right here next to the main studio, and I have the, this is where I start the streaming audio from. And for everyone out there, you know, it's not magic. There's a whole lot behind making these things happen where you can actually hear it on your computer through these speakers now or whatever. I mean, it was hard enough to get radio waves in the air to people. But now, anywhere on the planet, people can hear this if, they're, if, if they've just uh, you know, clicked the right thing with their mouse. It's absolutely outrageous what's happening. But at any rate, uh, Carrie said, okay, Mike, <laughs> we're going to count down from five. So, okay, five, four, three, two, one. And then he says, connect. I click on the connect button. Bingo. Like freaking magic. The stream starts out. It's 10.59, right? So anyway, Carrie, another wizard, thank you for helping me and for helping the radio program. And uh, Larry, as always, I love you guys. You're my brothers, and I thank you so much for doing what you're doing. It means a whole lot to me, even if it doesn't mean anything to anybody else, all right? All right, so great stuff. Um, and uh, this whole thing started with the, the tech radio guys that do a show from what, six until seven on Monday nights, and John and Justin doing great stuff, so thanks. All right, what else? Um, thanks to everyone who joined in last week. Great program, great music. Thanks to Eskmo, a.k.a. Brendan Angelitas, my friend. Used to be from Connecticut. Now he's from San Fran. Well, I'm not sure where he's from. No one's really sure. But anyway, living in San Francisco now, as of now, all right, and... Um, Michael Kane as well. He'll be back with us in a couple weeks when we have Rian Eisler with us. If you missed it, uh, the show's on the web, www.mikehagen.com. Uh, just uh, figure out a way to get to the archives, and you can hear the show that we did last week and all the shows that we've done before that since this program has been in existence. All right? As I said tonight, we've got Vince Bridges. He'll be with us live from his home in North Carolina Vincent was on the program last October, and I'm looking forward to talking with him again. Uh, it's another wonderful program, actually, the one that uh, Vince did with me in October. And if you, miss, uh, if you missed that, you can hear that on the web. Again, just go to the archives, uh, archives page. And Vince, of course, was um, the co-author with Jay Widener of Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hende, Alchemy and the End of Time. And that's sort of the second incarnation of the original book that was called A Monument to the End of Time, Falconelli 
and the Great Cross. I think that's what it was called, plus or minus. But anyway, they, uh, uh, Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges, these two amazing men, brought the story of Falconelli, this, another, uh, this enigmatic alchemical figure uh, from the, uh, uh, the early 20th century, into our consciousness, so to speak. And we've talked about it a lot on the air before, how prior to Monument to the End of Time, um, if you went on the web and did a search for the word Falconelli, that's with an F, uh, you would find only, I think, two references. Uh, one was a song that Frank Zappa had written called Who Was Falconelli? <laughs> and um, I forget. There was one other reference. Well, maybe we'll ask Vince about it. If somebody remind me if you're on the chat page and you really want to know, just remind me, okay? Anyway, uh, after Monument to the End of Time was released, I think it was 98, I mean, now there's, what, 10,000 different websites around the world that have been devoted now to the research of the Great Cross at Undai and uh, this character, Falconelli. You know, I've been there. I've been to this town, Hende, France. It's in the south of France, just north of the Spanish border on the Atlantic. And it's uh, like a... Um, like a little tourist town, actually. There's not a lot of people that live there, but it's beautiful. It's in the Basque, what they call the Basque region of Spain and France. And it's a beautiful mountainous area. And we'll talk with Vince about it. I don't know if he's listening live uh, right now over the web. Maybe he is, but we'll talk with him about it. But there's this area called Languedoc. And the word itself, Languedoc, is one that's very interesting. It has to do with language of light, actually, I think. Um, at any rate... Uh, I've been there, and this 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 place, this St. Vincent's, it's a little church in Hende. It's right on the street corner, and the car is passing by every day, and everyone just sort of goes about their business doing the tourist thing, and there's a casino there. And anyway, there's this cross, this this monument, and it just stands there. And it has inscriptions on it, and it is... Um, you know, aligned to the four directions. And it is really, really interesting. And, and once you start to, uh, uh, to research into this cross, it is, you know, down the rabbit hole. And so, anyway, that's uh, one of the many things that Vincent Bridges has been involved with. He's an expert on ancient Egypt. He knows things uh, like the tarot very well. And... He can speak with us about the Da Vinci Code, which is something we're going to talk about tonight. He knows a tremendous amount about alchemy and um, many, many other things. And he's a real cool guy, and it's a pleasure to have him on the air again with us, and we'll do that in about 40 minutes or so. And in the meantime, we will, um, you know, I don't know, do what we always do, okay? So check out Vincent, by the way, on the web at vincentbridges.com. You can link there directly from my site at mikehagan.com if, you, um, uh, if, you, if you're on the web, and I suggest that you get on the web and do that, all right? And you can get a leg up on everybody. You've got 35, 40 minutes or so to see what Vincent's about if you don't know already, okay? And I love the um, opportunity now that we have with the live stream of having this uh, chat room that's available as the conversation goes along with Vincent. And I'll pop in and out of there as much as I can, um, and uh, 
if you guys have questions or whatever and it's appropriate, we'll try to present those to, to Vincent. And he, as well, can be on the chat page. There's no reason why he can't be viewing as well. And he can address these things as he sees fit, too. So, anyway, give us a little while to get things going uh, with Vincent. Uh, but you're welcome to join in the uh, conversation. And the whole idea of this project is interactivity and the sharing of information and ideas and art and creativity and all this stuff, all right? And Vincent's right in the middle of this sort of stuff. He's wonderful. Okay, so we got the forum buzzing. We got live chat room up for those listening. Like I said, get on the web. Go to MikeHagan.com and uh, just scroll down a little bit. Click on the little link that says live chat and you can join us. All right. Okay, uh, also we have some very nice music for the show tonight. The wonderful sounds of the Wimshurst machine. We've had them on the show before. I think we had the Wimshurst machine once actually when Jay was on the show with us. And they deserve another round for sure. They're wonderful music and independent music from Italy. So a big hello and thank you to Augusto and the rest of the band. And thanks for sharing your art with us. We love it, okay? All right, so um, let's see. What do we want to do here? It's 20 after. Let's do a couple things really quick here. Thanks for nice emails. Everybody listening on the web, live or otherwise. If you're listening to the live stream, thanks to everybody at Cosmic Waves Radio. All right, CosmicWavesRadio.com. They're the ones making this possible for people outside of the KOPN listening area. And so Carrie and Paul and the other girls and guys that are helping you out, thanks so much. And check them out on the web. Uh, you can link directly to them through my site as well, okay? All right, uh, Larry, as I said before, the web wizard. Hello to all the new registered users at the website and uh, the forum. In particular, Val, uh, Valor and uh, Luxman and Bob Bolt back on the scene. Good to hear you're feeling better. Everybody else who's participating, thanks so much. That's what it's all about and it's wonderful to see it. And thanks to Larry for putting it all together. All right. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, get on the web and go to MikeHagan.com and go over to the forum or just sniff around a little bit and see what you see and see what you find and tell us if you like it. Okay. All right, with that in mind, uh, we are, as I say every week, trying to build a mailing list, and I'd like to know who's listening to the show. So if you're on the web, and if you do go to the website, just register over there. It's really simple. I don't need a lot of information, just a valid email address, and um, it'll give me a way to contact you and let me know at least a little bit about who's listening to the program. And if you do that, there are a couple things that are available for free. You can get a copy of uh, Yachai's Sweet Mother Mercy, a wonderful CD inspired by the ancestry and the history of Peruvian shamanism. Don Augustine, in particular, is a, a wonderful influence on Jeff and William, the two guys who are the principal forces behind Yachai music. And anyway, it's great stuff, and they've made the whole thing available. Sweet Mother Mercy for free. Um, you can just go download it. Uh, you just have to register at the site to do it. And as I said, I don't want any really personal information, just a, a valid email address and um, a way to contact you in case there's a reason to, all right? And we won't give it to anybody else or anything like that, all right? shouldn't even have to say it. All right, so um, get over there, all right, on the web and let us know who you are. Of course, thanks to everybody else who's already done that, all right? The email address for me, if you ever want to get in touch with me, is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. And... The website, MikeHagan.com, H-A-G-A-N. Okay? All right. Uh, let's see. Upcoming guest, Vincent Bridges, as I said tonight. That's in 40 minutes, 35 minutes. Okay? Next week, 
not quite sure. Maybe Walter Cruttenden. Walter and I have been talking over the last few days, and um, uh, the schedule is open for next week. So perhaps Walter Cruttenden, of course, if you aren't familiar, he's the author of a wonderful book called Lost Star of Myth and Time. And the premise behind Walter's uh, particular position is uh, that the sun in our solar system is not alone, that we are part of a binary star system, and that there's another star uh, involved in our little neck of the woods here, and it has a tremendous influence on us. And there's a, a wonderful story behind it that Walter Cruttenden can tell us about. And again, uh, Walter was on the show in November, I think. November 22nd, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, um, just go to the archives page if you want to hear that show. It was a great show. With uh, And the reason I remember the date is because my friends Steve and Mark from Chicago were uh, visiting last year, and they were here in the studio with me when we had Walter on the air, and it was a really fun and interesting show. So anyway, check out Walter Cruttenden. Uh, Lost Star Book, I think, is his website. LostStarBook.com. And... If it's not next week, it'll be sometime in the next few weeks. Walter Cruttenden will be back on the air with us, okay? Um, Jay Widener, of course, uh, I mentioned him earlier tonight. People familiar with the with the program will know Jay. Um, coming up again sometime in June, not sure exactly when. We've got Rick Levine trying to get a hold on that. John Major Jenkins back. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, I just got his book, and... Um, I heard from his publicist today, so we're just working on the schedule with Daniel Pinchback. He'll be on the show really soon, sometime in the next month or two for sure. Uh, Christopher Dunn. I mentioned this about a week and a half ago. Christopher Dunn, the guy who a number of years ago wrote Giza Power Plant. I would love to talk to him, and I can't get a hold of him. So anybody out there, if you know how to reach Christopher Dunn, I'd sure appreciate it um, if you could put me in touch with him or him in touch with me or something like that, because I'd love to have him on the program. And I haven't done a really good show on Egypt and on Giza. Uh, and, and from a technical side, uh, engineering side, man, he's the guy. He's the guy to talk to. Now, uh, Vincent Bridges can talk about Egypt, uh, the esoteric side of it, at great depth. So we'll have um, Vincent. We may ask him a few things about Egypt tonight as well, okay? All right, uh, Dan Siebert, Daniel Siebert, an expert on Salvia divinorum, another interesting plant hallucinogen, another one of our... Uh, Larry wants me to change the language and he's right we shouldn't be using that language anymore it's a um, what do they call them Larry they call them supplements right it's a health supplement salvia divinorum a wonderful health supplement just like psilocybin is a wonderful health supplement I suggest them uh, that you might look into those things alright Char Davies remarkable artist visual reality pioneer Coming up sometime. Don't know when. We've been working on it for a while, but we'll uh, we'll get Char in here. She spends most of her time in another world, so it's a little bit difficult to get here on the radio. All right, and we got Kat Harrison, of course, working on that with uh, Dennis and some other things. But we have a lot of great stuff to come, and um, I'm just uh, grateful to be able to do the program and happy that you guys are out there enjoying it and listening to it, okay? All right, it's Mike. It's Radio Orbit, and we'll be back. We'll come back and do Space Weather. But let's take a break. We'll do a tune here. We'll do a song, another song from the Wimshurst Machine. And this one is called Celtic Death Ballad. And it is Memorial Day. So I think I'm going to read something special 
for Memorial Day over the music. And there are a number of versions of this thing that I'm going to read, uh, but this is one that I like. And the message is about the same in all of them. It's from 1854, and the words were spoken by a man who was called Chief Seattle. And uh, here it is. All right, this is for my ancestors and your ancestors and all of those who have come before us and for all of those who have died and for all the children, for all the children who have been murdered and raped and cheated out of their lives because of greed and power and idiocy and heartlessness. And it's over. Brothers, that sky above us has pitied our fathers for many hundreds of years. To us it looks unchanging, but it may change. Today it is fair, tomorrow it may be covered with cloud. My words are like the stars, they do not set. What Seattle says, the great chief Washington can count on, as surely as our white brothers can count on the return of the seasons. The white chief's son says his father sends us words of friendship and goodwill. This is kind of him, since we know he has little need of our friendship in return. His people are many, like the grass that covers the plains. My people are few, like the trees scattered by the storms on the grasslands. The great and good, I believe, white chief sends us word that he wants to buy our land, but he will reserve us enough so that we can live comfortable. This seems generous, since the red man no longer has rights, he needs respect. It may also be wise since we need no longer need a large country. Once my people covered this land like a flood tide, moving with the wind across the shell-littered flats, but that time is gone, and with it the greatness of tribes now almost forgotten. But I will not mourn the passing of my people, nor do I blame our white brothers for causing it. We too were perhaps partly to blame. When our young men grow angry at some wrong, real or imagined, they make their faces ugly with black paint. Then their hearts, too, are ugly and black. They are hard, and their cruelty knows no limits, and our old men cannot restrain them. Let us hope that the wars between the red man and his white brothers will never come again. We would have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Young men view revenge as gain even when they lose their own lives. But the old men who stay behind in time of war, mothers with their sons to lose, they know better. Our great father, Washington, for he must be our father now as well as yours, since George has moved his boundary northward, our great and good father sends us word by his son, who is surely a great chief among his people, that he will protect us if we do what he wants. His brave soldiers will be a strong wall for my people, and his great warships will fill our harbors. Then our ancient enemies to the north, the Haidas and the Shiminians, will no longer frighten our women and old men. Then he will be our father, and we will be his children. But can that ever be? Your God loves your people and hates mine. He puts his strong arms around the white man and leads him by the hand, as a father leads his little boy. 
He has abandoned his red children. He makes your people stronger every day. Soon they will flood all the land. But my people, they're an ebb tide. We will never return. No, the white man's God cannot love his red children, or he would protect them. Now we are orphans. There is no one to help us. So how can we be brothers? How can your father be our father and make us prosper and send us dreams of future greatness? Your God is prejudiced. He came to the white man. We never saw him, never even heard his voice. He gave the white man laws, but he had no word for his red children, whose numbers once filled the land as the stars filled the sky. No, we are two separate races, and we must stay separate. There is little in common between us. To us, the ashes of our fathers are sacred. Their graves are holy ground. But you are wanderers. You leave your father's graves behind you, and you do not care. Your religion was written on tables of stone by the iron finger of an angry god, so you would not forget it. The red man could never understand it or even remember it. Our religion is the way of our forefathers, the dreams of our old men, sent them by the great spirit and the visions of our sachems, and it is written in the hearts of our people. Your dead forget you and the country of their birth as soon as you go beyond the grave and they walk beyond the stars. They are quickly forgotten and they never return. Our dead never forget this beautiful earth. It is their mother. They always love and remember her rivers, her great mountains, her valleys. They long for the living, who are lonely too and who long for the dead. And their spirits often return to visit and console us. No, day and night cannot live together. The red man is always retread before the advancing white man in the midst of the mountain slopes. He runs before the morning sun. So your offer seems fair, and I think my people will accept it and go to the reservation you offer them. We will live apart and in peace, for the words of the great white chief are like the words of nature speaking to my people out of the great darkness, a darkness that gathers around us like the night fog moving inland from the sea. It matters little where we pass the rest of our days. There are not many. The Indian's night will be dark. No bright star shines on his horizon, and the wind is sad. Fate hurts the red man and hunts him down. Wherever he goes, he will hear the approaching steps of the destroyer and prepare to die, like the wounded doe that hears the steps of the hunter. A few moons and a few more winters, and none of the children of the great tribes that once lived in this wide earth or that roam now in small bands in the woods will be left to mourn the graves of a people once as powerful and as hopeful as yours. But why should I mourn the passing of my people? Tribes are made of men, nothing more. Men come and go, like the waves of the sea. A tear, a prayer to the great spirit, a dirge, and they are gone from our longing eyes forever. Even the white man, whose God walked and talked with him as a friend to a friend, cannot be exempt from the common destiny. We may be brothers after all. We shall see. We will consider your offer when we have decided we will let you know. Should we accept, I here and now make this condition. We will never be denied the right to visit at any time the graves of our fathers and our friends. Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, every clearing and wood. It's holy in the memory and experience of my people. Even those unspeaking stones along the shore are loud with event and memory in the life of my people. 
The ground beneath your feet responds more lovingly to our steps than yours, because it is the ashes of our grandfathers. Our bare feet know the kindred touch. The earth is rich with the lives of our kin. The young men, the mothers, the girls, the little children who once lived and were happy here, they still love these lonely places. And at evening, the forests are dark with the presence of the dead. When the last red man has vanished from this earth and his memory is only a stone and a story among the whites, these shores will still swarm with the invisible dead of my people. And when your children's children think they are alone in the fields, the forests, the shops, the highways, or the quiet of the woods, they will not be alone. There is no place in this country where a man can be alone. At night, when the streets of your towns and cities are quiet, and you think they are empty, they will throng with the returning spirits that once thronged them, and that still love these places. And you will never be alone. So let him be just, and deal kindly with my people. The dead have power too. machine wonderful stuff this is mike and you listen to radio orbit it's kopn columbia as well and uh 89.5 fm on the dial and also if you're listening on the web on the internet we are streaming live at cosmicwavesradio.com and i suggest everybody go over there and check them out they're doing a wonderful job and uh carrie and paul and everybody else is involved over there thanks for uh, making that available for us. Okay, and <clears throat> as I said, the Wimshurst machine, great stuff. I got uh, Vince on the line. I don't know if he's on the line or not. I'm sure he's listening by now, but I had to come uh, out of that break. So uh, Vincent Bridges in just about 15 minutes. Uh, between now and then, we will do space weather really quickly here. And uh, let's see, on the chat page, somebody made a note uh, about Chief Seattle, and I will read this really quickly. Uh, it says, Chief Seattle's grave marker reads, Seattle, chief of the Suquamps and allied tribes, died June 7th, wow, only about a week and a half from now, uh, died June 7th, 1866, firm friend of the whites, and for him, the city of Seattle was named by its founders. Uh, on the reverse of his grave marker, it reads, baptismal name, 
Noah Seelf. He probably was about 80 years old when he died. Anyway, thanks to Bob for uh, that further information. And uh, bow your head for a second for everybody, okay, that's uh, done their deal. Okay. Uh, Vincent, coming up in just a few minutes. What are we going to do between now and then? What did I say? All right, we've got um, space weather. Lots of talk still about Comet 73P Schwarzman-Vachmann. If you want to get the latest, get on the web. Go see Kent Stedman over at cyberspaceorbit.com. That's the best advice. All right? Sunspots, um, well, actually the sun's getting a little bit of a rash, as they say. Uh, a bunch of little sunspots that are popping up everywhere right now on the front part of the sun that we see. And there's one in particular that's called Region 890, and just a day or so ago it was virtually invisible, but now uh, as big as the Earth itself uh, today. And a couple of big sun sh uh, sunspot regions that have just been sort of blowing up in the last couple of days. So never know what's next, so we keep our eyes open. But uh, up in the north, you'll probably get some nice aurora in the next few days if I had to guess. All right. All right. Also, um, one of the things that uh, Vince and I are going to be talking about is the Da Vinci Code tonight. And interestingly enough, I found this thing on the web today about something that's called the Da Vinci Glow. And if you look west at the sunset tonight or tomorrow night, depending on where you are, and you'll see a crescent moon, actually. And uh, about 500 years ago, our friend Leonardo, the master, he solved a mystery that had existed for some time. And it had to do with this strange glow uh, that uh, exists between the uh, the horns of the crescent moon, actually. You can actually sort of see this glow and it outlines the moon, moon itself and uh, this mysterious glow they um, eventually called the Da Vinci glow but Leonardo realized that it was sunlight that was being reflected from the earth onto the moon and they call it earth shine these days if you talk to the guys at NASA or whatever um, but uh, Da Vinci glow was something that it was called historically and in some cases still today. So anyway, you can check it out and bask in the Da Vinci glow over the next few nights as we have this wonderful crescent moon uh, setting in the west, all right? Okay, tomorrow, the 30th of May, uh, what else is happening in the sky? Uh, Mars will be a little bit left of the moon uh, as the evening sky sort of gets darker tomorrow night. Uh, you'll see, I don't know, three, four degrees to the, to the left of the moon, you'll see Mars. And the Gemini twins Pollux and Castor will be um, to the right of the moon by maybe five, six, I don't know, a few degrees, eight degrees. And um, on the 31st, well, what's interesting on the 31st? Let me see what I have in my notes here. Oh, actually, on the 31st, you get to see five um, sort of inner solar bodies. You get to see Mercury, Mars, the moon, Saturn, and Jupiter. And they'll all be within about 135 degrees of each other, uh, from spreading from like the west northwest to, uh, to the southeast. And uh, the bright, the, the way to sort of align this is the bright star. You'll you'll see a star, quote unquote, uh, that's bright, that's below the moon, and that will be uh, Saturn. This is on May 31st, okay, on Wednesday. And uh, that that star that you see directly below the moon is not really a star; it's the planet Saturn. And um, you'll see uh, 
Lots of wonderful stuff on that night if you want. Okay, You can see all those things, as I said, Mercury, Mars, the Moon, Saturn, and Jupiter. And they'll all be in the sky on the 31st. Okay, All right, May 30th. Uh, also the 35th anniversary of the launch of Mariner 9 and uh, the 40th anniversary of Surveyor 1, which was a moon lander in 1966. The 31st will be a uh, another comet. We've been talking about 73P, uh, but there's another one. P- there's, they're all over the place, actually. But uh, this one in particular, Comet P206K2, uh, This will have its closest approach to Earth in uh, just a few days on the 31st. What else? Lots of uh, satellite launches and things. I made some notes just about how how frequently satellites are launched and stuff. I mean, there's so much stuff flying around now up there in the sky, around the planet. I mean, there's just so much up there. I remember years ago, I saw this thing on the Discovery Channel, and they talked about how, you know, if one satellite sort of got busted up, in orbit that it sort of I mean honestly think about it like a little meteorite or something hits it and shatters it and breaks it into a thousand pieces well these things are flying around the earth I mean and they're flying at tremendous speeds and so now that satellite is now a thousand little projectiles and now those things are all flying around in orbit and if they smash into other things they will have the same effect as the little meteorite did. And so eventually, uh, the, if you propagate that, you know, the idea of this show that was on years ago, and I guess it probably wasn't right because we're still sitting here and we still have satellites, but uh, the idea just fascinated me, right? That um, eventually you just have a bunch of space junk because everything begins to sh- destroy everything else. Um, and anyway, I guess, it sh- I guess it also goes to show how much space there really is up there and how hard it is uh, for these things to actually impact other things because there's just so much room and there's all these different levels of orbit and all these things. You know, we walk around the Earth and we pretty much think in two dimensions, you know. But out there, man, it's like being in the ocean. You know, it's 3D. 4D, actually. <laughs> anyway, okay, so what else? Uh, June 3rd is the 40th anniversary of Gemini 9. And uh, that was in 1966 as well. So, All right, anyway, uh, lots of stuff happening above our heads, as always. Vincent Bridge is a guy that uh, is paying attention always about the things that are happening above our heads, recognizes that the things that happen above our heads are connected to the things that happen in front of our faces. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I owe a personal thank you to Vincent for... Um, helping me out. I had an interesting question about the stars with regard to something that happened in my recent past, and he was um, gentleman enough to give me some wonderful insight. So, anyway, he's awesome, and he's coming up in just a few minutes. And uh, let's see, I was going to do some news, but we've only got about six, seven minutes before the top of the hour, so I think we'll get some music ready and we'll sort of chill out. I'll talk for another couple minutes here. But We'll play another song by the Wimshurst Machine. Should load all these up, as a matter of fact. And I sort of chose them tonight because they are—they have a, a CD, as a matter of fact. It's called The Alchemist, and uh, it's great stuff. And they're really wonderful musicians, and have put together all this music sort of in their spare time. They're independent people, men and women, uh, who have professional careers or whatever, but make music on. The side and do it whenever they can, 
And anyway, I appreciate everything that they've done. And we're going to play it again tonight. It's fitting. And you can check them out on the web. I'm not sure exactly what their website is, but if you go to my website, uh, you can just uh, jump right over there. I'm sure Larry will have it hooked up. And if you click on the musical guests or the music archives, you'll find the Wim Search Machine. And I think there's a link to them right on the front page as well right now, right underneath um, Vincent Bridges' name. And Vince can be found on the web as well at vincentbridges.com. So, okay, do that. Uh, take a few minutes here. We'll play another song. This one is called, uh, let's see, we already played Magic Lights. That, that, that's what we started the show with, by the way. It's called Magic Lights. And we've heard since then... Uh, we heard the ghosts. Oh no, we heard the Celtic Death Ballad, and now we're here. Uh, we're going to hear Ghosts of Fallow Grounds, and we'll be back in just a few minutes at the top of the hour with Vincent Bridges. And one more time on the web, just check it out, MikeHagan.com. You can get everywhere else from there. Okay, this is the Wim Search Machine, Ghosts of Fallow Grounds, independent music from Italy, and you're listening to it on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. 89.5 FM, and uh, coming to you live on the web via CosmicWavesRadio.com.
All right. There you have it, Ghost of Fallow Grounds, another great piece of music from the Wimshurst Machine. It's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's uh, straight up midnight. And check us out on the web, MikeHagan.com, and streaming live tonight at CosmicWavesRadio.com as well. Channel 2, easy to see, okay? All right, let's get down to business. I am very excited, as uh, I am every week lately. But anyway, tonight, wonderful news. Vincent Bridges is back with us. Vincent was on the show, as I mentioned earlier, last October, and we had a wonderful conversation for those of you who heard it. Lucky you. If you haven't, hop on the web, and you can go to the archives and uh, sometime in the future listen to that program. But uh, tonight you get to hear it live, and uh, he's amazing. He's an historian. He is an author, a self-proclaimed anthropologist of the weird, <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, you all know him as the co-author of A Monument to the End of Time, which uh, also has another sort of incarnation as Mysteries of the Great Cross at Hende, Alchemy and the End of Time. And anyway, he's done many, many things. He can talk at great depth to many, many different topics, and so we're going to do it tonight and say hello right now to... Vincent Bridges. Hey, Vince, how you doing, man? Oh, pretty good. Good evening, Mike. Thanks for being with us, as always. Oh, nice to be here again. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, yeah, from the East Coast, as a matter of fact. What, 1 o'clock there right now, your time? That's right. All right. So, well, first of all, uh, since last time, we talked in October, and we talked a lot about the goddess Columbia, as a matter of fact, and there were some really interesting things that were happening in the stars. And maybe you can give us an update on what you've been up to for the last six months. And, um, I don't know, just... Uh... Well, the goddess Columbia um, has interesting ramifications reaching all the way to Dan Brown, since it appears, they're being very tight-lipped about it, that his next book is going to be about uh, the Masonic origins of Washington, D.C., <laughs> the <laughs> District of Columbia. Right. So that could be really entertaining to see where he takes that. Oh. Um Dan Brown so far has, how should we say, had his finger right on the pulse of, of wow. esoterica in the universe. Sixty million copies so far. All right, and we'll, we'll, we're going to talk um, more about about the book, about the Da Vinci Code, and and certainly about the the uh, the story behind it, which is something that you can talk really deeply about. But anyway, what's what's the deal with Dan Brown? I mean, I mean, is he a spook? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, um, he's a very lucky person who was placed at the right time. There's been a lot of people that did the basic research that went into um, the Da Vinci Code. Myself included, I made my own small contribution. And uh, apparently Dan Brown decided that he would uh, go for esoteric thrillers. First book, Angels and Demons, all about the Illuminati. Um, There's several discussion groups out there focusing on the Illuminati. And apparently in 98, 99, he went trolling for Illuminati stories. And apparently in 2001, 2002, he went trolling for Priory of Zion stories. And um, whatever he found, he seems to have had quite a talent for putting it together into a tasty mystery stew, shall we say. No doubt about it. I love it. So anyway, uh, it's just a tremendous amount of controversy, which is always, which tells you something, right? Uh, touching a nerve. Oh, certainly. I mean, and I love it. It actually cracks me up. I mean, I mean, 
it's just very funny to watch what's uh, the reaction to the whole thing. But at any rate, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we uh, roll along. What else? Uh, what else you've been up to? I'm halfway through a book on Shakespeare. In fact, we're going to England in August to finish it up. Um, it's Shakespeare's connection to the origins of the Rosicrucians huh. and his relationship with Dr. John Dee. Wow. The, uh, Elizabethan magician sure, alchemist. Sure, And what was his, uh, was it Kelly? Was it John Kelly was his partner or Edward Kelly? Edward Kelly or Edward Talbot. We're yeah. not quite sure what right, his name really right. was. Very, I, I have this, um, I have this book, True and Faithful Relations, I think it's called. Oh, yes. And Mary Cassabon. Amazing, yes, book. amazing book. Uh, that was sort of the first public uh, knowledge that uh, oh, the literary world had that uh, Dee was into that sort of thing. Was, oh, probably about 100 years, or at least 60 years after his death. Mm, yeah. And um, it was sort of written to show how bad it was to do these things. So it is a little slanted, that version. Is. Right, right, right. But uh, amazingly, a great deal of these manuscript materials still survives in the British Museum and in Oxford and places like that. Oh, and his library was, I mean, the, the most amazing in Europe at the time, basically. Oh, so. without a doubt. It was right. the largest and the most complete uh, probably anywhere in Europe. Um, probably, in fact, since the uh, destruction of the library at Alexandria. And um, which that was, of course, was, all lost as well. Right, which was in the news again recently, as a matter of fact. I need to jump on over to my forum there, but uh, I know I read a story recently about uh, Alexandria, something else being found from there recently. But There's been a lot of good research, particularly the underwater research mm. uh, from the shifting in the harbor in Alexandria. My gosh, there's so much being found in these days, Vincent. It's amazing. Oh, yes. Egypt in particular has just been fascinating for the last few years. Really? I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to actually, before we, may, let's do that. I'm, we're gonna, we're, by the way, for the people out there listening, we're just going to sort of freeform tonight with Vincent. So uh, we, there's so many things that he can talk about. We're just going to see where it goes, all right? Um, and I know you're cool with that. <laughs> so Anywhere you want to take it. All right, so uh, so Egypt, we... I was I was mentioning uh, before I had you on the air actually I was mentioning that I've ne- I haven't done a uh, a decent show on Giza and I want to do two things I want to talk about um, sort of the esoteric side of Giza and the historical side of it but I also want to talk about the technical side and I'm trying to get a hold of Christopher Dunn and I can't get a hold of him I have no idea how to get a hold of him so I put sort of put the word on and said hey if anybody knows how to get a hold of Christopher Dunn I'd love to talk to him but anyway the other side of it you can talk to uh, uh, a lot. So, what's up in in uh, in G- on Giza these days? What's happening in Egypt? Well, if we actually had a um, a reliable source of information, um, might be able to accurately answer that. Huh. As you know, you Zahi Hawass isn't giving you the straight shot. Um, we'll assume <laughs> you're being ironic here. Um, Zawi is a, a really wonderful person, and uh, we'll just leave it at that. And yeah. I have to go back to Egypt again. All right, good. Um, since they built the wall around Giza. My God. What was that, two years ago? How long ago? Oh, it's been more than that. Uh, it was almost finished back in 2002. Oh. And now it's completely uh, completely done. It's very hard to get access uh, to Giza without having guides and controls and mm. so forth. It, it, it's no longer the just sort of free-form camel-riding show that, <laughs> that it once was. Had you been there, Vincent, before the days of the big lockdown? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, I was just remarking to someone over the weekend that um, most of the things we did as recent as 1998, you simply can't do anymore. Really? Places you can't get to and so forth. And part of it is truly 
the New Age explosion did a tremendous amount of damage um, mm. to the monuments on Giza and in other places in Egypt. We won't mention any names, but there's one famous uh, New Age guru, mathematician, geometry person, whose followers were caught uh, etching a specific image on the walls of the Assyrian oh. in Abydos. Uh, right, right, right. But, you know, anyway, things like having large groups inside the Great Pyramid and Oh, even as recently as 10 years ago, if you paid enough back, she, she could have any sort of access she wanted. All right, all right. So that created its own issues. Well, yeah, well of course, moisture problems. If you yeah. have 100 people in a room, you know, the size of the of the king's chamber, they're going to sweat. And uh, that much moisture is just going to you know, be very detrimental. So that's, on the surface, that's the reason that everyone is giving pro. We must control this. Too many people will destroy it and so forth. Part of that sounds like BS. I mean, in other words, the things have been around for thousands of years. There have been people. I mean, how much? I mean, it's freaking granite, right, or whatever. I mean, the sweat's not going to hurt it, is it really? Well, it's going to erode it. The salt is going to cause some damage, particularly if you have it night after night after right, night. Right, right. I guess, I guess, okay. They, they, in fact, had to install a fan in the king's chamber uh, to take care of some of that. There were, there could be other ways to do it. The, the implication seems to be that there are discoveries going on, particularly on Giza, that they really don't want anyone taking a look at without permission. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for almost 10 years out to the uh, out to the west of the Great Pyramid on the plateau there. Uh, they've been finding all sorts of amazing things that no one seems to want to talk about. Right. Uh, we know they're there. We You can go and see where things have been dug up, but you, you can't get any straight answers from uh, the Egyptian government. Any sources, I said, about exactly what it is they're digging up. So mm -hmm. every now and then we'll get something that's really big, you know. So, oh, Zowie will release some Egyptian mummies right, from right. the Roman period. Oh, we'll go take Fox News out and we'll show them that. Right, but, right. It's all just. But it's it, all no, no one really wants to talk about what seems to be some really profound uh, discoveries. I would imagine that anything they found that would be. Oh, indicative of a very, very high civilization, even in the early days of Egypt, much less going back to prototypical Atlantis or 10,000 years B.C. or whatever. I would imagine that any artifact they found that disagreed basically with the theme, they would tend to put that on ice until they can figure out a way to, to make use of it. Right. And uh, at the moment, there's so much vested interest, particularly in Egypt, on having the one archaeological story and servicing safely uh, the tourists that come to see this archaeological story. And it's going to be kind of hard to turn it around without, I don't know, it's some big revelation, somebody actually breaking the silence and said, well, you won't believe how deep we've been under the plateau. Hmm. So we can keep our hmm. fingers crossed. Let, I think eventually that will happen. Let me ask you a question with regard to that, all right? There, there seems to be, I mean, everybody's talking about what's going on underground, right? what's underneath the pyramids. Let me ask you sort of a, a left-field question about the stones and stuff. In other words, to me, how, okay, how much evidence is there that they were really brought in from a long way away? To me, it seems more like the anthill idea is a better idea, that they were digging down and they used the stuff that they found as they were digging to build these underground caverns or whatever, and then they just used the stuff to build the pyramid up on top. Is that... Well, that's that's very possible for the limestone sort of inner blocks. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and there is an enormous amount of caverning, not just at Giza, but all the way down to Saqqara, right. um, that you could take a, quite a large amount of blocks out of. I don't know that you could really take as much as there are in the three large pyramids mm-hmm. out of that area without causing a collapse, mm. generally, because that's a lot of stone. <laughs> The pieces that we do know that came from far away are the covering that's mostly gone except for the very top of the second pyramid. And some of the inside limestone features, inside granite features like the king's chamber and so forth. Mm -hmm. Some of the king's chamber granite um, probably came from the quarries at Aswan. But again, you're not talking about you're talking about large stones, definitely. No, I was just saying, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of speculating. You know, it just seems to me that the, the most reasonable idea is that the stones didn't come from a long way away; they just came from underneath. If they were, if that, if they in fact were digging, you know, and that there's all this stuff underneath, that maybe that's where it all came from. I don't well, know. apparently, a lot of the limestone uh, interior blocks, what we see now as the the jagged edge of the pyramid, those mm-hmm. blocks came from quarries across the river. There's huge limestone quarries. Right. Right. Um, south of what's now uh, the Citadel, over on the east side of the river in, in Cairo. Okay, so there's and evidence, and there, so there's evidence of these ancient quarries, etc. Right. right, we know to a certain degree where a, a, a good majority of, of the building material came from. Okay, all right. The problem is, and this is a, an ongoing thing that no one seems to want to address, even on the renewed interest in oh, let's have a show about the pyramids on the History Channel. Right. There's not really a way to say that, okay, the Egyptians were trying to build up to this point. They discovered how to build a true pyramid very stably. They only built two of them and then one much smaller. And then they went back to building it the old way. Um, It's much more likely that there was something on Giza, the Sphinx, and maybe one, possibly two pyramids, even if maybe one of them was unfinished, uh, that had been there since time immemorial. Uh Uh-huh. One of the earliest Egyptian uh, pieces of writing, pieces of art we have, the Narmer palette, shows on one side an enclosure over the king's left shoulder with a pyramid in it. Uh-huh. And we don't have anything that we can date from that time period, so uh-huh. it's sort of like, hmm, could it be that there mm. was a large enclosure on Giza? Well, which is why they built Memphis there. Was so it would be within sight. Right, right. Well, let me ask you about this because there's a guy on the on, on the in the chat room actually right now that mentioned he said, Mike, I've heard it before on orbit that older pyramids were technically superior to the later ones. Uh, I'd like to be directed to evidence for this, he asked. So um I've had a number of guests that talk about how not not only in, in uh in the east, but also in Central and South America, that the evidence for the older pyramids being more sophisticated, you know, architecturally and technically, et cetera, than some that came, than, 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 not some, than those that came afterwards. It, is, is this a reasonable statement or, or is that incorrect, Vincent? Well, um, the best book on, on the Egypt question of pyramids is IES Edwards' The Pyramids of Egypt. It's mm. rather old, but yeah. very solid. Of course, the older the better. Well, it's sort of like, okay, we weren't quite so concerned with politics. (laughs) So there you find that, yeah, you really can't trace, as I was saying, this this progression. We now know that, for instance, uh, the pyramid at Maidun collapsed later. It wasn't one that failed halfway through and then we moved over 
And again, the same way about the Bent Pyramid. The Bent Pyramid seems to be intentionally built the way it was built. Right, right. And it's not, okay, we're trying to figure out how to build one that will look like the Great Pyramid without knowing what the Great Pyramid is. It's sort of like we have the Great Pyramid as a model, so we're going to test out these different ways either to make it a little bit different or to see if we can copy it. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like the model, the pyramids on Giza were there first, and then the pharaohs of, of the first six dynasties or so were building either trying to build the same size or right. continue or as it got further into the business. Right. Now, that right. makes more sense to Smaller. me. I mean, it makes more sense to me. Okay. Wonderful information. I love that. All right. But in terms of pyramids worldwide, mm -hmm. we do find some large, almost enormous pyramids that are uh, just truly ancient. There's oh, one in oh, China. Oh, for China, yeah, and in, in Vietnam. It, it, it's just, it's enormous. It looks like a hill, but yet at the same time, it, it was clearly structured and it's pyramidal mm -hmm. in shape. And again, those may be as old as 10, 12,000 years. We just really don't know. Right, then we got this, you know, they're everywhere, Vincent. They're all over the United States. It's like, I, I live uh, 120 miles west of St. Louis, which used to be called Cahokia, right? Which was... This is a giant freaking pyramids, basically. They're just underground. I mean, they're just under mounds of, of earth now. Well, the, um, the Cahokia in East St. Louis was an enormous city. Mm -hmm. um, at the time period, oh, say, let's say, 11, about 1100 A.D. Mm -hmm. um, so a thousand years ago, plus About a thousand years ago. Right. The major population centers on the planet, the top five major population centers, Istanbul, Alexandria, um, you know, Paris, Cahokia <laughs> um, was on the level with, with any of those right, and amazing. was probably bigger than most. Now, the estimate was that there was probably about 150,000 people who lived in the general region around Cahokia. And it has a beautiful three-tiered pyramid that's enormous, all sorts of mounds, effigy mounds, and it mm -hmm. even has a replica of Stonehenge. <laughs> Amazing. In other words, it has a wooden version of how to count the calendar right. that works exactly the same way that Stonehenge. Outrageous. Yeah, uh, my friend Kent Stedman, who runs a website called Cyberspace Orbit, he's real cool. And in fact, I, you know him. Uh, you sent him. Oh, yeah. You sent him a book uh, a long time ago. But anyway, he's cool, and he loves this stuff. And we've been talking. There's this pyramid in Bosnia that's just been sort of unearthed recently, but they're everywhere. And he uh, did this work in Wisconsin, and he found in Wisconsin alone there's something like 20,000 mounds, you know, that are earthworks, and many of them aligned to the stars and all kinds of outrageous stuff, you know. Well, actually, they haven't found one yet that doesn't have some sort of alignment. Right. I mean, um, they're everywhere. There's a city, uh, Ozitlan, that... Uh, mm. Is again sort of like this on the not quite on the same scale as Cahokia. It was a much smaller outpost, but it's just as sophisticated in terms of city planning and layout. So right. Up in Wisconsin, though, they tend to call them, uh, "Oh, that that mound over there. That's where we're going to build our ski lift." Right. It's amazing. Amazing. Uh, you know. Anyway, and the, so all around the world, we see this stuff. It's absolutely outrageous. So, um, well, I, I sort of have a theory that um, along about the time the Mayan calendar said go. Mm -hmm. There was this big explosion, and you can track eight. That? That's about 3,000 B.C. or plus yeah, or what is it? 3,100 B.C. 3,100 B.C., plus or minus, okay. Because you can track around the planet an explosion of eight great civilizations, and each of these civilizations are built on the idea of 
geomantic or earth wisdom structures, hmm. earth buildings, hmm. uh, mounds, pyramids, alignments. Like stone and wood. Some people hmm. being more, I don't know, in a region would have it, or, or again, it's sort of like whatever you have at hand, these social groups developed cultures, developed um, you know, identities around their geomantic projects, right. big-scale geomantic projects. But only a few of those seem to have survived. Uh, a lot of them tended to die out, and that's what we're seeing with the, the pyramids all around the planet. There's a similarity um, in, in terms of why are you building mounds, why are you aligning them to these astrological or astronomical situations. Right. And um, uh, apparently back then they understood much better than we have any idea now what it means to have a living planet, uh, to not actually go and kill the planet and, and, and pave it over, but to actually work with it, to actually work with the forces and the structures and, and the unities that are within the planet. Hmm. And what we seem to see with all the mounds, including the, the Great Pyramid and so forth, that's why it'd be nice to hear from, from Mr. Dunn again, is that there is some sort of science there that, that we really just don't quite understand anymore because we don't look at the universe in the same way. You know, we've been, uh, I've been sort of, it's Memorial Day and I've been sort of doing a, my own version, but I had this uh, wonderful friend and teacher whose name was Grandfather Wallace Black Elk. Oh, yes. And uh, he uh, passed on about three winters ago now, I guess. But anyway, I had the great privilege of uh, spending time with him in Denver, Colorado for a number of Years and uh, anyway, uh, one night w he was telling us about uh, his ideas of Giza and um, the way that stones were cut and this sort of thing. And and he 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 had this idea that that it was done with sound. And he I've told the story a little bit on the air before, but he talked about that they had what what he described as a whistle type of thing, and that with this they could cut stone, they could uh, uh, levitate and uh, all kinds of different things. But he said that sound was the primary vehicle that they used uh, uh, to to accomplish the feat. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it, it is fascinating um, that you mention that because there's a, a really odd uh, Tibetan tradition about how do you move large stones, how do you build sacred sites in one day. And it involves sound as well. Hmm. There's even a record, uh, there's even a, a record from, I think it's the 15th century, of uh, monks lifting heavy blocks uh, with sound. Hmm, amazing. Yeah, he was outrageous. He said, he said that the way, he said, as a matter of fact, he said that they built it from the top down. <laughs> he said they didn't put it from the ground up, so they built it from the top down. It's the only way they could do it without it having it collapse. That would be something interesting to see. <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's amazing how much we don't know. I mean, it's amazing that we can speculate about all this stuff because it's still such a mystery, all this stuff, you know? Well, we tend to think, oh, because we're modern and we're rational and we have records, and oh, we can go dig things up and we can look up who said what about what over a couple hundred years that, that we really know what we're doing. Um, but we don't. Uh, we destroy as much in our search for one idea as we ever find. And it's talk about Egypt again, nowhere is that more sort of like pregnant than in Egypt where you go into all the temples and they're now empty. Mm -hmm. And everything that was in them is 
gone, scattered all over to museums and collection, collections all around the world. Right, right. And the, the Native Americans have the same problem. Uh, we're addressing the same problem for a long time. What do you do when your your, your sacredness gets stolen and locked up in museums? Oh, and it's like, okay, we, we, we think we understand this, but it's sort of like museum magic. You know, right. That's what we're understanding. Yeah, there was not really understanding how it works. Oh, it's it, and and it's it's enough to make to make you crazy at times. I mean, there was a story. I'm sure you're familiar with it, and you know people who are interested in this stuff have known for a long time. But it actually came out sort of in the mainstream recently about this clown Prescott Bush who was involved with the the the, the desecration of Geronimo's grave, and uh, in fact. Uh, Taking the skull, actually, of Geronimo, when supposedly it, it exists on the mantle in the Skull and Bones little little hideout at Yale University. There, they yeah, call it the tomb, the tomb, or the crypt, whatever they call it. What a bunch of creeps! Anyway, what what uh, what do you make of that? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, well, Prescott Bush is one of the few presidential forebearers that ever had a law specifically enacted against them. <laughs> In other words, in 1943, right, uh, the federal it. government had yeah. to pass a law to prevent uh, Prescott Bush and, and some of his oil buddies from continuing to sell aviation fuel to Nazi Germany. Right, it was the whole trading with the enemy deal. So, I mean, you know, yeah, need we go on. Yeah, I know. Extrapolating, folks. <laughs> anyway, okay, look, uh, that's a good place to take a breather, okay? All right. Uh, it's Mike and uh, Vincent Bridges. You can check out Vince on the web at www.vincentbridges.com, and you can get there directly from my website as well. And, Vincent, what do you have on uh, what's going on on your web these days? Well, my website's a little bit, a little bit slow these days. Um, I've changed over to a blog format, and for some reason it, it, it's intimidating to me. So I, I haven't know. changed much lately, but it's all like, the good stuff is still there. Hey, uh are, are you still doing the the tours? Um, we haven't done any tours in about a year or so. Um, I've been focusing on other things. I know you're writing your book, but we've had a couple of books come up, and uh, frankly, the Da Vinci Code stuff and and other things. Um, I've been busy doing a lot of television lately. Huh. All right. Well, good. Well, we'll come back and we'll talk about more of that stuff. Okay. Okay. All right. It's Vince Bridges and uh, it's Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Here's a little bit more music from the Wimshurst Machine. Again, wonderful independent music from Italy. And uh, a quick hello to the people on the chat uh, right now. Pio, my good friend uh, from Sweden, is online with us now. It's so cool doing this, uh, uh, this live stream thing because we have people joining us. Vincent, by the way, uh, not just locally and regionally. Now we've got people listening all around the world, actually. So Wonderful. Yeah, anyway, so hello to P.O., hello to Bob, and uh, the people up there in uh, Oregon, you know who you are. Everybody else, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in just a few minutes, okay? It's Mike, one more time, Radio Orbit, and this is The Wim Search Machine. The song is called Charming Mechanics.
Yeah, that's uh, Charming Mechanics. Great music from the Wimshurst Machine. Independent music from Italy. All right, it is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Vincent Bridges, and you can find out about all of us. Just get on the web at MikeHagan.com, and you can jump right over to Vincent's website at VincentBridges.com. And you can also find information about the wonderful music that we've been hearing tonight, the Wimshurst Machine, uh, through the same means. Okay, just go to the website and you can jump over to the music page. All right. Okay. So, without further ado, um, Vincent, uh, the book was called Monument to the End of Time. This is how I was introduced to you and your work, and I ha- I had an interest in that part of. Uh, the world, anyway, this uh, southern part of France and the northern part of Spain. And I actually went there. I've actually been to Hende or Undai, whatever they call it. Um, I went there in 2001, actually, shortly after the whole 9/11, you know, disaster. Um, anyway, did I, you get to see the cross? I did. I I I I went right there, and I have pictures of me with it, and I saw it. I put my hands on it, you know, and I and I had your book with me uh, at the time. It was the second time I read it. I read it in 1998 when it came out. Uh, I heard I heard. I'm not sure if I heard you or Jay or both of you. I heard one of you guys on on um, on Jeff Rentz's show, I think. Yeah, that was both of us. Yeah, and and um, anyway, I was fascinated, and so I I got the book, and. The first time through, I, I, I realized there was something there, but, I mean, it's a, it was sort of a tough read, you know, no doubt, and takes some focus and all that, and, and some historical background and all that is, is good if you're reading that sort of stuff. But anyway, second time I read it uh, was when I actually went there, and my wife and I had our honeymoon, actually, in that part of the of France, and we decided that we would take a, you know, part of the deal was we were going to take this sort of weekend trip, and go to Hende, and I wanted to see the cross and everything, and I did, and it was absolutely outrageous. And because everything that I had read, all of a sudden it was concretized. You know, it was like, wow, it's real. This thing is right here. All the inscriptions, everything. Although, like you say, you know, talk about weathering and all that. It's right on the corner there with all those buses, and it's sort of a tourist town, and you got the casino there and all that. It's just sort of right there. Yep. It's right there off the square. Nobody uh, seems to notice it. It's amazing to me. And anyway, so I went there, you know, and and we, I saw it all and we took pictures of it. And you're right, it's getting harder and harder to read. But gosh, you you guys have done such an amazing job now of uh, of documenting it. So uh, it's it's a tremendous credit to you and to Jay for bringing that whole thing into uh, the consciousness of of our Western world, at least, because it is such a mystery and a wonderful story and uh you guys are great for doing it so anyway the whole deal is connected believe it or not to this da vinci code thing and i i've been sort of promoting the co uh the show that we're going to talk about the da vinci code and alchemy and all this stuff and people are i think trying to figure out what the connection is but i'm just going to let you do that because uh falconelli and uh the story of the cross at hende um, really are sort of tied into the whole Da Vinci story. Uh, it's tied in in a very weird way. Um, yeah, I had no idea when Jay uh, told me about Fulcanelli back in 1996 um, that it would, a decade later, it would sort of be my life's work, that I would be like Fulcanelli's biographer. Uh, but that's kind of the way it worked out. When we first looked it up on the web in 98, 
um, there was two mentions of Ten Day, one of which was about the Tour de France that went through there that year. Mm-hmm. And the other was about Hitler meeting General Franco there in 1940. There right. two mentions we found. Right, right. And we found no mentions of Fulcanelli outside of the Frank Zappa song. Okay, all right. All right. Who is Fulcanelli? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so now if you type in Fulcanelli or Hinde, you'll get multiple thousands. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're sort of responsible for that. We took it from a very obscure little French bit of esotericism into something that's now... In worldwide um, mysteries, the reworking of Monument mm-hmm. um, is being published. It just was published this spring, in fact, yeah. in Russian, Greek, uh, Italian, Portuguese. Nice. So it's it's making the continental rounds. In fact, I, I now have several thousand discussion groups in Russian talking about me that I can't read. <laughs> Fascinating to see what they might be saying. Right, Big right. hit in Russian. I'm, I'm really glad. But well. The crux of, of, of the real mystery is not so much who is Fulcanelli or was he real, but you know that weird little cross sitting in that strange little beach town uh, on the border of the Basque country and all the little threads that, that lead out from that. Mm. And one of the peculiar threads, one of the things that we sort of noted in a geomantic sense, for want of any other better way to think of it, mm-hmm was that if you drew a line from uh, St. James to Compostela out on the, the tip of Spain to the west, right. through through Hinday and then went to, say, Axe in Provence, you would have a line that was about equidistant from Hinday to St. James and from Hinday to Axe. And then along that line you would find pretty much all of these rather odd mystery centers. Hmm. And then, of course, you add to the fact that Arles and Axe and that general region of, uh, in Provence was where the original pilgrimage to St. James formed. Later they would come from all over France, Paris, and Orléans, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the original started in Arles, and the idea was that they were walking the Milky Way. Hmm. And if they're walking the Milky Way from Arles to St. James, one end of the Milky Way to the other end of the Milky Way, then the center of the Milky Way is at Hinde. Hmm. Because that's the center of the line between the two. And it's sort of like, okay, how many levels of cosmic resonance do we need piled on top of this? So just kind of pulling on the thread of, of, of what else is this connected with, just on that basic of a level, drawing a line on a map, mm-hmm. it raised a huge amount of questions that, that, that what we knew from Fulcanelli and the people giving reports to Fulcanelli, none of it seemed to make sense. And hey, uh, Vincent, real quick, uh, uh the nutshell headline version of Falconelli, just for people who've never heard the name before. I'm sure there must be a few that haven't, yes. <laughs> uh, um is the only alchemist of note in the 20th century that left behind works of, of great erudition and knowledge in the alchemical tradition, and that there are reports from people who were apparently there that he perfected the transmutation, uh, that he was the real deal so to speak. His books, the two books that we have by him, quote-unquote, are Mysteries of the Cathedral and Dwellings of the Philosophers. A third one, um, The Glory of the End of the World, rough translation, um, never appeared. And uh, there have been various sort of um, half-hearted attempts to say what that might have been or point to things or, oh, we've come up with something that might be, but so far it, 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 it's gone. <laughs> So we have those two books, and then we have a, a body of work in, in French 
uh, by a fellow named Eugene Cancelet and students and followers of his that talk about Fulcanelli. Cancelet was his student. He was the person, one of the people that were there at the transformation and so forth, right. transmutation. Right. So if he's mentioned very prominently in the book that started the whole New Age event called The Morning of the Magician. All right. Powell's and uh, Berger. Berger, that's right. Wonderful book, man. Yes, well, it kicked everything off back in 1960. God, that's a wonderful book, yeah. All the threads that we're still talking about today can be found there. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes in a little distorted form, but at least they got them all in one cover. Yeah, so, some people talked about Berger himself being an alchemist or something like that. Well, he had a, a claim to have a few meetings with Fulcanelli, or oh. what he thought may have been Fulcanelli. Right, right, right. So he's the source of a few of those latter-day rumors. Right, right, okay. So, basically, we came to the whole thing from the point of, isn't it really odd that there's this thing in France that has these basic connections and that when you just take a very simple code known to a lot of people at that point, how you lay out the arrangements for your deck and certain basic Kabbalistic ideas, that you could get a date and a time for the end of the world. <laughs> we said, oh, isn't this interesting? And once we demonstrated that the monument actually pointed to a very specific time with a lot of redundancies, that it's specifically talking about a moment in time that was the uh, fall equinox of 2002, and that being the middle point of a 20-year period roughly from 1992 to 2012, roughly the last back to the Mayan calendar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then it began to go, hmm, mm -hmm. now, now who, who knew this much? Who was on to this, you know, back in the early 20th century or earlier? I mean, who made the monument? Right. So, Fulcanelli is one of those mysterious people that will probably never come to a complete understanding, right. and that's probably by design. I've come to the conclusion mm. that if there really is a real Fulcanelli, i.e. an immortal person who's been around since the era of Nicholas Flamel, four or five hundred years, right. then he's probably not going to you know, write me a letter and tell me how much she loves the book. <laughs> and if it's just a myth and to a certain degree an invention true. of a group who had a, a very important secret about the timing of the end of the world hmm. and they couched it in alchemical terms, then that's that's cool too. Okay. Either way, that's right. fine. Now what about uh, the cross? We We know that it didn't really originate right there. It was moved there at some point, right? To where it sits now. It sits in this place, believe it or not, St. Vincent's. It sits in a church called St. Vincent's in the square. But, yeah. But was it, it always there? No, it wasn't in front of the church. Um, in Mysteries, we didn't get this far in terms of research for Monument, but in Mysteries, um, I had a couple more years to work on it and another trip to France intervening. And um, we actually tracked down the family that moved it, and oh. that's a real clue into... Uh, the whole Fulcanelli mystery wow. going towards Rennes-le-Chateau. Okay. And uh, the family that moved it was the local D'Abadé family. And uh, What was the name of the family? D'Abadé. D'Abadé. Or D'Abadé. D'Abadé. Um, they were somebody, Irish. Somebody look into the roots of that one. I'd like to know that. Well, it, I'm sure you have. It's, it's really, it, it, we don't really, we could do a whole show just on these guys. <laughs> it turns out that the main person involved um, had the statue, had the monument moved from the cemetery, which is immediately behind the church, as you remember. Okay. But there's no indication what grave it was on or why it was ever built. Right. 
But we do know that it was built in the 1680s, mm-hmm. as Fulton Ellis said. So he obviously, you know, had the same sources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating is that the De Abaday, who had them moved, was also a very prominent astronomer, one of the few people in the 1880s to track a transit of Venus. Is that right? And he was also wow, an African explorer. Mm. Uh, had spent a lot of time in Egypt, mm-hmm. and a whole theory about Egyptology, mm-hmm. etc. And that in his notes, he left notes about most of the prominent places mentioned in parts of mysteries and almost all of dwellings of the philosophers. Uh-huh. This transit of Venus is a big thing, though, right? Oh, it, it's a big thing in, in terms of figuring out the timing of this whole astrological, astronomical process that we're talking about. Okay. Because we're in this period between, uh, we're, we're in this period now between the two transits mm-hmm. of Venus. Mm-hmm. Venus crass, passes in front of the sun. Um, so 2004 was the first one, and then eight years later you get the second one of the pair. Mm-hmm. They, all, they always come in pairs. Mm-hmm. So um, Antoine de Abadet was uh, quite a scientist, Egyptologist. He had a fascination with Gothic architecture. He hired the fellow that redesigned and rebuilt, restored Notre Dame de Cathedral, um, Violet Leduc. He hired him to build him a nice little Gothic chateau just up the coast from Hinday. It's now a museum. And apparently on that piece of headland, which the family bought in the 1840s, they found um, this very ancient Basque marker stone. We don't have any record of it. The stone has long been disappeared. But uh, in 1906, a very strange fellow by the name of Hewitt uh, wrote a book about some very strange ideas about how old the world is and the Atlanteans and mm-hmm. some very crankoid stuff even for 1906. <laughs> but as one of his pieces of proof, he describes the stone that had been at Hinday. Really? And the motifs on that stone are pretty much exactly the motifs that are copied on the Hinday stone of 1680. So the idea is is that whoever did the stone that we're looking at now, the cross, did it knowing full well what the Basque symbols meant. Okay. And the Basque symbols, again, point the same way. Eight-rayed star, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of eclipse moon symbol, the very same kind of angry sun face um, that, that, in fact, led us off to South America. Right, right. it's very, very Mesoamerican looking. You know? Well, it's, it's also a classic Basque. Well, amazing. So the the really tricky one is, is the panel with the four A's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the A is a sort of funky A, like you mentioned. It's the Basque sort of way they, they the way they write it. Well, it, Basque, it, it that particular type of A is something that is used in Roman fonts for Ave Millennium. Okay, I was going to say or Latin or something. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, who's a topographer, was able to supply that piece of information. All right, all um, right. but. So when you look at the cross, you're looking at four millennium, four ages, very clearly. That was represented much more simply on the original mass stone, but again, got across the idea of these four great ages of time. Mm-hmm. The A's, though, tend to relate to a very specific idea, very specific esoteric current or idea, that's related to the same idea as you can use the attributions of the tarot cards to determine what the monument is saying. And when we began to pull on that little thread, I'm like, okay, now how does this work? Fulcanelli began to go in, in some pretty unusual directions. 
And one of the directions he went um, is the connections to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Hmm. which was the late 19th, early 20th century sort of now most famous magical, quote-unquote, order. And when we hear the word hermetic, though, then that goes back to Egypt, right? And then well, hermetic and, and all this. The, the, the sense of Hermes. Right. Um, the whole Gnostic idea. And uh, what we do know about the Golden Dawn, it was one of these things was probably kind of made up by a group of people who wanted to dabble in this stuff. Hmm. But from somewhere they got some very powerful ideas. And interestingly enough, the people in England sort of stumbled onto them there was a huge discussion about where this information is coming from. Right. And one of the founders went to Paris and actually met a physical person who claimed to be from the Third Order who had the information. And then some of this further information came through, came from these sources. Part of that further information is the idea that the four aces from the Tarot deck mm-hmm. are the four A's mm. of the ages. Mm. And that the way in which you attribute the tarot to the surface of the earth and then the projected sphere gives you the alignment of the cube of space that we determine from the cross. And again, to go back to Giza, you can also determine the same cube of space type arrangements from the, what's a good way to put it, the gnomic geometry of, of Giza. In other words, they're saying the same thing, describing very similar things, but the geometries are are rather different, hmm. rather different minds conceive them. Hmm. So once we began to pull on that little piece, there was a very unusual section in Mysteries in which Fulcanelli out of the blue just stops and said, okay, now pay attention, I'm going to talk in code here. This is the most important thing I'm, I'm going to say. And then he begins to line up this whole bunch of ideas that are, in a punning sense, around Ron, Aron, which... Ren le Chateau in, in Languedoc and Occitan is Ron. And again, that's a good pun for Aron, the uh, queen, uh-huh. and Aron, the spider. So he does this very elaborate sense of puns, throwing in Greek words mm. that he's punning off of. And language is just the, the whole deal here. It's amazing, oh, right. the use of language, right? Well, this, this is part of the, the code. In other words, I'm going to tell you something very important, but you've got to be smart enough to figure it out. Right, because right, it's all right. here, but you've got to figure it out. Hey, Vincent, real quick, the, this Languedoc, what does that mean? It means language, language of the South. Language of the South. I was seeing that there was something that had to do with light because of the OC. Uh, well, it, it's the land of light for sure, hmm. but um, okay, okay. in French it, it's land of the, of, of the South, the older French. Okay, right. And again, the Occitan, um, you, you see the same use of the same syllable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the you know, original sort of language. Um, the earlier version of, of um, France is sort of like America in the sense that you, you may understand French in Paris or New York, but if you go to Atlanta or further south, or if you go to the southern part of France, it doesn't sound a thing, a thing the same. It could be two different languages they speak. And back in the old days, there was a, a much greater difference. In other words, there really was a language that could be considered you know, of that region. And there is a whole region now, of course, the Languedoc. Right. Now, um, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, but uh, we're, we've made it to Rennes-le-Chateau. And, and at that point, um, let me ask you a question, and, and I guess we'll sort of leave people hanging at this point, and we can start again at the top of the hour. But Mary Magdalene, there's a, there's a deep tradition 
that follows Mary Magdalene in this part of the world, in the south of France. Oh, there is indeed. So, uh, I guess, um, tell us a little bit about that before we go to break, and then we'll talk, because I guess that's going to tie us into Da Vinci again. Well, sometime in the mid-40s of the first century, um, a group of refugees arrived in southern France that included Mary, Martha, Bethany, their brother Lazarus, um, several of, of Jesus' closest disciples in the inner or family circle, including relatives of both his mother Mary and his cousin John the Baptist. And this is documented. Um, well, it's documented from an archaeological I mean, point of view. Right. I mean, as well as anything in this stuff is documented. Right. We, we know archaeologically that there was a large influx of um, Jews uh, in this particular time period, in the 20 or 30 years before the overthrow of the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, the Roman emperors, in particular, had allowed this particular region to be settled by um, the overflow from Palestine. Okay. In fact, you find some of their disposed rulers of the region, like Herod Antipas and so forth, uh, being stuck in little villas up the Rhone River and like Vienne and so forth. So it was uh, pretty much how should we say, Galilee West, mm-hmm. Palestine West. Okay. <laughs> and from the archaeological remains, we know that from the mid-first century, there were Christians in southern France. Very interesting. Yeah, and this was the early Christians, the Gnostic Christians and the Cathars, and we'll have to talk about all this stuff, right? They, they sort of grew into one another. Right. Okay, wonderful. Okay, everybody, this is Mike, and uh, you're listening to it. It's Radio Orbit. And my guest is Vincent Bridges, and we're having a wonderful conversation, as we do. And you can find out information about Vincent on the web at www.vincentbridges.com, and you can also check him out uh, directly from my site at mikehagan.com, okay? All right, so we'll play another piece of music here by our featured musicians of the night. They're called the Wimshurst Machine, and uh, they make good music. And they're from a little place in Italy. And my friend Augusto is writing good stuff for them, and I thank them all for the music. So anyway, this one is called Mystical Sea. And we'll come back in about six minutes and um, talk more with Vincent Bridges, okay? All right, it's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, back in just a few, and also on the web, broadcasting live, streaming live, uh, via CosmicWavesRadio.com. Thanks to everybody over there.
Mike, and you're listening to it, Radio Orbit, and my guest, Vincent Bridges. Let's get right back to him. Vince, thanks for sticking around. No problem. And, okay, right before the break there, we were talking, uh, just getting into the story about Mary Magdalene and uh, the connection with the south of France and Rennes-le-Chateau, this amazing church that's in this area. And uh, why don't you just continue along those lines? The truly amazing thing we found was that this two-paragraph, three-paragraph section of mysteries had numbers in it when you did the Greek gematria for all these strange words that he was punning. Again, this book is uh, Mysteries of the Cathedral, this Falconelli book. Right, published in 1926. Right, okay. And that this is long before anybody had ever heard anything about Rennes-le-Chateau, I might point out. Okay, right. Sonia had just died in, in 1917. It was the 50s before the Corbu family turned it into a tourist attraction. Uh-huh. So in 1926, no one knew anything out of a small, outside of a small circle. There was anything important about Rennes Chateau at all. But in this one little two, three paragraph section, Fulconelli supplies us with all these Greek words, and when you add them up, do the gematria on them for uh-huh. each word, you get a set of numbers. Now, in all the mysterious stuff, and I won't go into all of it, but maybe this made up and maybe it's been claimed and this happened and that didn't happen, there's one code square that they did find on Father Saunier in his effects after he died. All right. And the numbers on that code square have been worked out by a, a very entertaining Frenchman, Ricard Bounard, and a uh, swell fellow. And the numbers that he came up with in this code are directionals. Go So it's this number of meters here and this number of meters here, pointing to a, a place apparently on the ground if you know where to count from. Uh-huh. Turns out those numbers are the exact same numbers that Fulconelli went to such trouble to code into the Greek. Is that right? Back in 1926. Huh. Now, I wrote an article for New Dawn magazine back last summer. Um, it was a two- or three-part article that spelled the whole thing out, that gave uh, Bunart's code and, and the explanation from uh, the mystery of the cathedrals. So it's sort of like, what was there important enough to code 
this piece of information into mysteries for him to just stop in the middle of the book and go, okay, listen up. This yeah, is important if you can follow it. Right. So obviously there was something there. There really was something that, that Sonia found that was of interest to what group of people. In other words, what connection would Fulcanelli the alchemist have all of a sudden to this mystery about Jesus' bloodline and Mary Magdalene or, or whatever it was that Sonia mm-hmm. found? Mm-hmm. Connected to that, as you were saying, it is all of these traditions in southern France about Mary Magdalene all over Provence. You find grottos mm-hmm. where Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. spent time in meditation. And in some of those same grottos, um, you also find statues of the Buddha dating from the 2nd century A.D. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It's like, hmm, <laughs> there, there were Buddhists in southern France as well. Turns out the region, particularly around Provence, was very cosmopolitan going back 4,000 years. The 18th dynasty of Egypt had a trading post there, uh, right off the coast of where um, the Mary family landed, St. Marie de la Mer, going as far back as, you know, 13, 1400 BCE. Mm-hmm. So there was an Egyptian, and then the Greeks, Celts, Ligurians, that was the local pagans. And then in the mid-first century, this wave of, of Hebrew Christians. In other words, they weren't just Hebrews, they were Christians. Right. Now, interestingly enough, they came from Egypt. And Egypt was a stopover point. And again, that's the tradition that we hear from Mary Magdalene, is that she stopped over in Alexandria and then came on to southern France. Mm-hmm. And so archaeologically, we find in southern France, in some of these cemeteries, particularly in Arles, these relics that have Egyptian onks on them. <laughs> And they're tombstones that are Christian from that time period. And the Ankh is a really important symbol. It's the key of life, this little... Maybe you could describe it really quickly. It's basically a cross with a loop on top mm-hmm. above the crossbar. Mm-hmm. Okay, All right. Now, esoterically, that's the symbol for Venus as well. Huh. And you can contain within that symbol all of the sephiroths of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Re- all, what are there, ten of them? Ten of them, and they fit perfectly without changing their pattern or their order on and off. Oh, that just gave me a chill. That means there's somebody... Yeah, so it's a very big, mm-hmm. multi-level symbol that, again, you find in, in, in this sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. And, you're fi- and you find this as well in the south of France, as you mentioned. Right. In other words, there was a, a large Egyptian presence, and it was the Egyptian presence of these Gnostic, heretical Christians. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. In the Cairo Museum and in the um, Coptic Museum in Cairo, you can actually watch the Ankh change into the Cairo of the early Christians. The Cairo being the the uh, the X, and then, or in other words, the combination of the Greek letter Chi and the Greek letter Rho. Right, the, the first two letters of Christos. Ah, yeah, K R or whatever the way we the way we would see it. And you could actually, well, it would be X and something that sort of looks like a P. Right, right. The, the, those are the Greek letters, right. right? And those two put together, you can actually see them transform in, in the Coptic Museum. Well, you know. From the Ankh into the Cairo. And you even find some of them used interchangeably, side by side. Vincent, and again... I'll, 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 uh, I've never said this on the air before, but I'll tell you. I have, I have the Cairo tattooed on my, on my left leg. <laughs> it's this image that stuck with me for a long not not because of the Christian tradition, but well, it's a symbol basically of those people who understand the mystery. 
In other words, if you had an awe, or if you had a little copy of, of the Hyundai Cross, mm. that's the reason why you went to Hyundai. Mm. Because you, you had already tattooed it into your flesh. <laughs> and again, it's the basic symbol of what happens when we align with the galaxy and the cube of space aligns. There is that ascension. The loop of the P is the loop of Draco, the dragon at the ecliptic pole mm. that makes everything work. Um, it's a fascinating symbol, and for Constantine to declare that you know this is the sign that I'm going to conquer by, it doesn't really make him Christian. <laughs> mm, no doubt about that. It means that. that he was going in a little bit different direction. Right, right. Anyway, as we began to kind of unravel these things, it turned out that one of the important things that had been found at Rennes-le-Chateau was the stone. And on one side of the stone is something that sort of looked like maybe it was a Templar thing, maybe two people on a horse or a a knight and a young child, or a knight and a gravestone. And then on the other side of the stone, it's on the front side, mm-hmm. two, two, um, two faces, two images. The right image is the knight, and then the left image is this incredibly wild shamanic figure of um, someone with horns meditating on what seems to be a ram skin or a deer skin. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that these images tie directly back to what may have been the origins of the whole reason why Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, became mythologically the figure she did, which is that in megalithic Europe, the, the great goddess, the great Our Lady Underground, was Mari. Hmm. And we can trace that through several languages, um, that this is the great mother goddess. What seems to have happened is in some of these cultures, as the very early Christians, Gnostic Christians, merged with the very sophisticated pagan, Egyptian, Celtic, Ligurian communities that were there, the Druidic communities, mm-hmm. um, that a transformation happened and that we have a very different idea of what Christianity is, symbolized by this idea on, on the stone that was found at Rennes-le-Chateau. Wow. Possibly the reason why Father Saunier had so much money, and he did, without a doubt, he spent the equivalent of what would be about $10 million today. And he's the man that uh, was behind the construction of Rennes-le-Chateau? Right. He was the one that, he was the uh, $10 a year country curate that was able to spend, amass and spend over $10 million in today's money, building a lovely house for himself and a nice uh, tower overlooking the valley to house his library. (laughs) And he dug up and redid the cemetery, moved things around, erased tombstones, changed things around, um, and nobody knows how he was able to, to come up with the funds to do that? Well, that's part of the reason. That's part of the connection, huh. <laughs> interestingly enough. One of the people involved in the whole Fulconelli movement, two brothers, Pierre de Jules and Antoine de Jules. Mm-hmm. Antoine de Jules was the older brother, and he was friends with Antoine de Abadet. Uh-huh. And we heard and his name earlier. He's the fellow who moved to Hyundai Cross. Okay. He's the family that was behind the whole protection of the cross, St. Vincent's, mm-hmm. and probably one of the models for Fulconelli, at least he had some of the same interests as Fulconelli. No. Okay. Antoine de Jules is the first person to write a complete sort of history of the Merovingians and tie them into the tree of David. And again, he's one of the people that is involved, he and his brother, in the Fulconelli thing. Turns out that Antoine de Jules was good friends with Saunier's brother, Alfred, Alfred Saunier. Okay. And that both of them had connections at St. Sulpice. 
So somewhere in there, the 1890s, somewhere in there, information about what Sonia had found and its importance in literally destroying the Catholic Church emerged. And the group around Fulconelli that formed between Antoine d'Abonnet and de, de Jules and Champagne, Jean-Julien Champagne mm-hmm. and Consolet, somewhere in there, that group discovered it and made it the key of this new revitalization we're going to leap the secrets of the end of the world in this alchemical fashion. Hmm. And the two became linked at that point in a way that w- was not obvious to anyone. Amazing. And the link seems to be the money. <laughs> because a large source of Sonia's money seems Go to Go figure, huh? <laughs> really. A large source of Sonia's money was the Habsburg royal family, the dynasty that ruled the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah, for, for, for a long, long time. Yeah. And, and they were quite wealthy. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean one of here. the Austrian archdukes, Archduke Jonathan von Habsburg, actually resigned, being an archduke, and became plain old Jonathan Ort. And this is a, a, a bizarre story, but it's it's all true. He resigned his archdukeship, became a, a commoner, and became a ship captain, sailing off to Peru with a box full of documents uh, that he had gotten rather mysteriously in search of something. And um, he disappeared from history at that point. Now, curiously enough, that's a few years before um, Sonia died, and about the same time that Sonia began to have money problems is, is when uh, Archduke Johann disappeared. Okay. But about the same time period, just a few years later, 1915, in fact, we have the first Fulcanelli sightings. And it turns out that probably there's a connection somewhere between Fulcanelli, the person who was a friend of Antoine d'Abadé and Antoine de Jules, Pierre de Jules, Champagne, and so forth, and Jonathan Ort. And that is the linkage that connects Rennes-le-Chateau to Fulcanelli and the whole alchemical mysteries. Mm-hmm. Now, it gets more interesting because as this particular group sort of developed in time. In other words, as they developed the whole Fulcanelli idea, it sort of fell apart on them when they couldn't come through with the third volume. But what they did is they produced a, a sort of a, a, a magical resonance, for want of a better word, that was picked up in the next generation by Pierre Plantard and the pranksters of Zion, who then, working on the same idea, that there was something really odd and really amazing that was threatening to the Catholic Church that mm-hmm. found it mm-hmm. in the Chateau, built this huge mythology that now we, of course, have a a movie uh, about the Da Vinci Code. Mm. Without the whole idea of the Priory of Zion and the particular spin on the Priory of Zion uh, that Holy Blood, Holy Grail put on it, there certainly wouldn't have been a Da Vinci Code. Amazing. So however it all connects, and again, there's there's a little bit more research to be done around the edges, we're talking about a, a, a piece of an object, a piece of evidence that is literally explosive and literally, according to what I can find from various sources, could be considered incontrovertible, incontrovertible proof, not so much that Jesus had a family, but that he didn't die on the cross. Huh. That he probably was alive as le- at least as late as Matsada, if not much, much later. Wow. And by a piece of evidence, you mean literally a physical, something that people can put their hands on and take a look at? Well, see, that connects to the whole other tradition of what 
actually is the Holy Grail. See, I told you this went in many bizarre directions. No, no, it's interesting, because I was wondering if we get to the Grail, because, uh, of course, well, that's the, sort of the Grail. The whole <laughs> idea of the Grail being the, the holy blood, royal blood, um, right, right. the division that basically Beijing Lincoln and Lee came up with, they were almost the first people to mention that, may or may not be a valid way to, to divide it. Um, the way it's actually spelled in the text won't divide quite that evenly, and medieval French doesn't work doesn't work quite that way. So there are problems with just saying "Holy Blood, Holy Grail," you know, depending on where you, you know, divide between the N and the G. Mm-hmm. So that may be a little spurious, but the basic idea that there was a tradition and there was an object that verified Jesus's existence after the crucifixion, or that he had descendants. Something that would verify the faith right. can be found in Provence from very, very early on. One of the people who arrived with the Marys at St. Marie de la Mer in roughly 45 AD was a fellow called St. Trophimius. Hmm. Now, Trophimius just means triumphant one. It's a title. It's not really a name. Okay. We don't know much about him other than he was an aesthetic. He uh, meditated in a sword-shaped cave, which is still there. You can still go visit it. And in 52 A.D., he imprinted his knee print and or his hand print on one of these onk-covered sarcophagus lids in the cemetery at Arles, in the Alachamps Cemetery at Arles. Now, the tradition was that this was actually Jesus. Okay, it was Jesus either come down miraculously mm-hmm. through the, inter- you know, the prayers of St. Trophime. Okay. But the object existed and, and could be seen a little tiny chapel there in the cemetery, up to the 12th century. In the 12th century, it got caught up in politics, mm-hmm. built a new cathedral for it, and somehow it disappeared in between the little chapel and the cathedral. Okay. Now, whether that's the grail in the sense that this is something that demonstrates the reality of Jesus, and whether we're looking at something like that that Sonia found, that's like, okay, you know, we can date this to you know, look at this, you know, whether it's that kind of evidence or not, we, mm-hmm. we really can't say. say. Right, but that's something we can point to. We can say, okay, they believe this for a long time. Mm. And throughout the whole Middle Ages, anyone who was a great king or a great hero um, would have their body embalmed or, or put in a cask of, of alcohol and shipped to the olive shops to be buried. Mm. Because the idea was that if you were buried near this relic, then you would be you know, one of the first to be resurrected mm-hmm. Resurrection Day, and you'd be one of the company of the elect, and so forth. Amazing. So it, it had this whole reputation, reputation right up to the 12th century for holiness. The other curious thing is St. Maurice. You've probably heard of the uh, Spear of Destiny. Sure, yeah. A strange story in and of itself, man. Well, when they did uh, a little work on the Spear of Destiny just a few years ago, they got permission from uh, the Austrian government to do archaeological work on it to... Um, do carbon-14 and to take it apart because mm-hmm. it's a, a composite thing. It's and again, this, for, for people who aren't familiar, the Spear of Destiny was? Supposedly, it's the spear that was plunged into Jesus's side at the crucifixion. Right. Okay. The tradition is that it's one of these magical talismans that will allow you to rule the world, mm-hmm. which is why Hitler was interested, Charlemagne, Napoleon, you name it. Right. And supposedly, after World War II, it went back to the Hofburg in Vienna. Where just a few years ago it was examined, and it was dated to oh the middle part of the second century, 
And as they unwrapped it, they found a carving on it that had St. Maurice's name. Really? Now, St. Maurice, very interesting fellow. We don't know hardly anything about him because his story was expunged from history. And a few centuries later, there were some legends and things that surfaced that got written up by a local historian at the place where some things happened. But it was one of these things that was completely wiped out from history. And again, part of the whole story of what was going on in southern France. St. Maurice, according to the the legend, was the leader of the Theban Legion. Theban, T-H-E-B-A-N. And that was supposedly the Egyptian Legion. Right, Thebes, okay. Except that all of the people in the Legion were recruited from Provence. Okay. So we're talking 276 A.D., roughly. All right. And the next ten years or so, it's hard to pin it down, but the last great persecutions of Diocletian against the Christians. St. Maurice's Theban Legion was a legion of Gnostic heretical Christians who rebelled and refused to slaughter other Christians Hmm. during this persecution. And they were first decimated, which is one man in ten were killed. And then when that didn't get them to do it, they were, everyone was killed. The entire legion was, was massacred. And they were tracked down and killed to a man all the way down the Rhone River, tracking the refugees, all the way down to Arles, hmm. where the last one was found. Now, curiously enough, it's recorded that St. Maurice and his variety of Christianity, Egyptian, however, in that link with Alexandria and the Egyptians that are very prominent in in Provence, Mm -hmm. the gypsies. He had apparently four relics. And the relics were a magic sword, magic spear, magic cup, and a magic cask or or talliard. Mm -hmm. And if you remember your grail stories, those are the four hallows of the grail. So what we know is that Constantine, just a few years later, in his great struggle to become the the one emperor, actually ended up with the spear of St. Maurice and the sword of St. Maurice. When the legion was decimated, apparently those two items were taken by the Roman authorities. The cup can still be found at the place where it happened. The weird little uh, canton of, are you ready for this? Zion. In Switzerland. No kid. That's right. It's um, there to this day, uh, very near the place where St. Maurice's body and some 400 of, the, of his uh, fellow Christians were, were buried. Amazing. And, you know, the archaeological research has been done, and you know, if you go there today, the nuns will show you around, and if you're really nice, they might open the door and let you look at the cup. <laughs> but apparently the most holy of the relics was the talior, or the casket. And, again, Talior is an earlier version of Graal. If you're thinking of something that's large and flat that you could lay a big fish on, mm-hmm. then it, it's a very similar object depending on how you use it. Okay. Apparently that was the holiest of holies, and they brought it back at great risk to Arl, where it was hidden again. Amazing. So it is entirely likely that that's what we're talking about. That's the origin of, of those particular legends. Now, in Arl, they'll tell you, quite frankly, that the whole guardians and the whole idea of the grail stems from the two Marys that landed at St. Mary de la Mer. And Mary Salome has the urn, Mary Magdalene's urn of healing unguent. That's the holy grail. And every May, the gypsies on white horses, and they call themselves the guardians, 
come and escort um, the bones of the two Marys back down to the sea, reenact their landing, and right there on the effigies is the Holy Grail, this little vial of unguent, the healing balm, the alchemical, however you want to look at it, mm-hmm. elixir of life. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's still there. It's just like, huh. well, maybe we don't, we're not quite looking at it in the right direction. All right. Well, look, amazing, Vincent. All right. Uh, let's take a break, okay? Okay. And we'll come back and we'll talk more about it. Uh, gosh, I, the imagery in my head, I go back to the hills, you know what I mean? And I think about that area of France, and it's just magical anyway, you know? Oh, yes. Anyway, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Vincent Bridges. We'll come back with Vincent in just a minute. And in the meantime, we'll hear another piece of music here from the Whim Search Machine. This one is called, uh, it's called Wind Sailor. And... Enjoy it. Back in just a few minutes. And one more time on the web, MikeHagan.com, and you can check out Vince at VincentBridges.com as well.
great stuff. That's Wind Sailor from the Wimshurst Machine. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, also broadcasting live tonight and every Monday night on CosmicWavesRadio.com. Channel 2, check us out on the web if you're not in the local or regional listening area of KOPN. All right. My guest is and has been for the last hour and a half, Vincent Bridges. And uh, we're lucky to have him, and we'll come right back to him here. And you can find out information on the web about Vince at www.vincentbridges.com. Lots of information, books, and uh, man, just a, a, a total labyrinth of information at the website as well, Vincent. So um, back to you. Well, so we uh, were talking about uh, Mary Magdalene in southern France. Right, right, right. The whole point of all this is that there was, at one point, an alternative form of Christianity that that we could think of as sort of like the Shiite uh, version of Islam, Hmm. the adherents of the followers of the family, and that eventually became the Cathars that threatened the Catholic Church so much that they had to launch a crusade against them, wipe them out in the most brutal manner possible, and actually invented one of the worst uh, inventions in, in human history, the Inquisition, now what, in order to kill them out. Let me ask you a question about, again, the the the, the language here. I think of the word Catholic, C-H-A-T-H. We have the beginning four letters, same as Cathar. And then the, then the word catharsis and cathartic and all this. Are these all related? Well, yes. Catholic is not. Catholic is what from... The Latin word meaning universal. Okay. And that's uh, more along the, the Greek word, uh, the closer would be cathode. Mm. Uh, cathar and catharsis, though, are related because they're, they're, they're referring to emotional states, the purification. Cathar meant the purified ones or the perfected ones. Wow, and then, and then that, that relates right back to alchemy. Indeed, and, and um, there's quite an alchemical strand in this Gnostic version of Christianity. And part of the alchemical focus is the Black Madonna, mm. the whole idea of Mary Magdalene, the whole idea of the sacred feminine, the whole idea of including the goddess. I love it. And that's why the Da Vinci Code has hit such a nerve with, with people for the last three years. If the Christian church really wants to die, <laughs> then they'll ignore what's been going on, what, what, what has been brought to the surface by all of this. Mm-hmm. Because the the ladies in the audience are just not having it. Um, I did a speaking engagement a couple of weeks ago. I did a 90-minute live debate for Christian TV. I was the supporter of the Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I finally just said, okay, look, everything you think of as Christianity comes from Mary Magdalene. She was there for the teaching. She was there at the crucifixion. She's the first witness of the resurrection. She was considered the apostle to the apostles, and she had the secret teachings. So, you know, if you're integrating and repressing women, then you're really not following Christianity. Hmm. And uh, so that's been making the circle of Christian TV, and that's the point. At the end of that, there was maybe 200 people in the studio audience, about half and half, male and female. Most of the women afterwards came up to tell me how glad they were hmm. that I said that. Good for you, Vince. Including the wife of the minister who was hosting the thing. Right on. So if Christianity wants to die, they'll ignore what the Da Vinci Code really means. Hmm. They'll they'll ignore and denigrate and, and turn their back on this whole new idea of Jesus and Mary representing a fullness, how to be fully human. And, um, you know, they'll have to, of course, overcome their distaste for sex, but anything is possible. Right. It's uh, 
you know, it's the whole difference between dominator type of organization versus a partnership organization. That's one very good way to look at it, and we, we certainly have had way too much domination in the past. And, uh, you know, the Catholic Church has just simply killed too many people. Um, I had the opportunity to sit uh, right where the martyrs were burned at the foot of Montsegur on the same day, 755 years later, uh, that they were burned. And um, what it would take, the level of belief and certainty that it would take to willingly march into the flames to preserve your secret. My gosh. Um, they must have been incredibly powerful people. That's mm-hmm. all I can say. Mm-hmm. And they make the Christians uh, who were putting him into the flames just look bad. <laughs> no other way to put it. Right. So the, if the Da Vinci Code and, and all of this, all the work that we've been doing on the Grail, I mean, I'm a historian. If you write a historical book about these subjects, you'll sell 10,000, 20,000 copies. If you write a good mystery novel, 60 million. <laughs> okay? But the historical background needs to be needs to be fleshed out. Right. And it's not so much that, okay, this is the truth or this is not the truth. But we need to look at the very idea that maybe everything we've been told about Jesus Christ and Christianity is a lie. Right. I mean, if you want to start talking about works of fiction, I mean, if you really want to go to the mat, you know, I mean, it's sort of hard to prove uh, a lot of these old books. In fact, that was one of my answers on the show was, well, how do you feel about the fact that the Vinci Code claims to be true but is actually has all these errors in it? And I said, well, the same could be said of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So... Fascinating subject, and uh, eventually I will write my huge true history of the Holy Grail, but All right, well, one, not this decade. One last question before we go to a few questions from uh, from the listeners here. Uh, Leonardo himself, how does he actually tie in? Well, see, that's the most fascinating component, that in the Da Vinci Code, it's just a place that they're going to stick the Priory of Zion key behind one of his paintings. Uh-huh, okay. But that painting, the Madonna of the Rocks, is actually a key to the real place where I think the casket is hidden to this very day. Really? And I, I've actually been to where I think it is. You want to tell us? Um, okay, <laughs> why not? An exclusive. Right outside of a little town called Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. Wow. And Saint-Rémy-Saint-Rémy is the same saint that uh, converted Clovis, the original Merovingian, to Christianity. Right outside that town, there's an ancient Roman city called Glanum uh-huh. that uh, disappeared about the same time as St. Maurice's legions were decimated and was not discovered again until the 1920s. Huh. And in that town, around that town, there are quarries where they took the stone for this rather large uh, Greek-Roman-Hebrew city. Uh-huh. And uh, in those quarries, you find a, a location, let me just put it that way, in which you're in one of the quarry holes looking out in two directions, just like Madonna of the Rock. Right, right. And one of the directions shows the quarry marker stone. What they did in the ancient world, and there are very few of these still standing in any ancient quarry anywhere, they would leave one spot that would show where the ground used to be, and then they would cut down all around it as they mined the stones. Oh, really? And so there's this one huge, it's oh, maybe 45 feet tall, Standing stones that's left from to show the the depth that they've mined the stones. Okay, I understand. That can be seen just like in the background of Madonna and the rocks from one of these quarry holes. Mm-hmm. So it's a much much longer story, but yes, right, I, I very think interesting. through some of Leonardo's connections. Huh. 
that he had very accurate information on where this piece of proof was buried. Absolutely outrageous. And to swing it back to Rima Chateau, one of the things that Saunier found were all these parchments and things, supposedly, that eventually had these counting clues go so far from this cross and move to there and so forth. Well, there are clues even among those things that it's not so much Rima Chateau, that's where one part of the secret was hidden, but the real secret is back in Arles. And uh, it turns out that Saunier and his brother spent a lot of time traveling up and down the Rhone River between Lyon and Arles and so forth. So I think one day someone will actually get permission to go dig. Another really curious point, uh, the mausoleum where Vincent van Gogh, another of the St. Vincents and the children of St. Vincent. All right, here we go. The mausoleum where Vincent van Gogh spent his insanity and painted Starry, Starry Night is, oh, perhaps third of a mile from the spot that we're no talking about. No kidding. So it's one of my suppositions that uh, Van Gogh, as we'll call him officially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, tuned into something that was just in the air in that spot. Hmm. And if you climb to the top of the hill above the quarry and above Guanam and look out on Saint-Rémy, you see exactly the scene that he painted in Starry, Starry Night. Mm. Of course, you need a lot of absence to see the stars move like you right, right, right. Okay, fascinating. All right, Vincent. So uh, let's uh, move on a little bit here, and there's probably some related questions here on the uh, on the chat page. So here's one that's been up here for quite a while. He says, uh, uh, please ask Vincent, uh, the Hende Cross, why do you think the cross tells people to go to Cusco, Peru? And you mentioned uh, earlier, I forget the character we were talking about at the time, but... Uh, Archduke Johan. Yeah. One interpretation of the very odd inscription um, can be anagrammed out, Inca Caves, Cusco, Peru. Mm-hmm. And it's such an obvious um, anagram. It's very easy to do. It's in several different languages. Um, that it, It's probably the most prominent clue that someone looking for clues would find. Personally, I think that in a certain sense, that's maybe a red herring. Mm-hmm. Um, it when we did the research in Peru, we found that it definitely indicated that Peru and, and the general area was the advanced civilization 12,000 or so years ago. Um, that's a whole other story. Atlantis can be found just a little bit further down on the Peru-Bolivia border. Um, and that's a whole other story. We, we could do a whole night on that one. All right. So it's like <laughs> this is pointing to what the civilization was like before the last cataclysm. Okay. Right. And it's not so much that you need to go and find you a cave somewhere outside of Cusco to to hang on in the next uh, cataclysm. All right. Although yeah. anywhere in the southern hemisphere would be preferable to the northern hemisphere. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, Pio says good music. Yeah, you're welcome. I know. There's, those guys are great. All right. One, uh, another one here. Now, I wouldn't normally mention another another author uh, but because you've been mentioning St. Maurice, uh-huh. uh, this, for whatever, seems synchronistic. So uh, a listener asks, um, ask Vincent if he knows of or what he thinks of Maurice Cotterell's new book, Jesus, King Arthur, and the Journey of the Grail, which tells the story of the Holy Grail and its current supposed location. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Maurice Cotterell, but I thought I'd just mention that. So, um, I would prefer not to comment for a variety of reasons. All right, no problem. Uh, let's see, here's another one. Uh, any comments on Habsburg Prince Nicholas de Vere von Drakenberg? 
<laughs> and his written work, The Origin of the Dragon Lords of the Rings. Wow, there's one for you. Oh, yeah. Well, good old Nick Kavir. Um, uh, who the hell is that? Nick Kavir is a fellow who decided that the Merovingian bloodline and, and all of these various unique bloodlines we're talking about had nothing to do with Christianity. They were actually more related to Vlad the Impaler. Oh, God. Who also was a dragon-type person, Vlad mm -hmm. Dracul, the mm -hmm, dragon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, Nick came up with this uh, rather spurious um, order of knighthood that uh, he says that only if you have Merovingian blood, which is identified by a DNA test, can you be a member of, of, of his <laughs> dragon order. Oh, all right. Well, um, I don't want to join. No. It, 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 let me put this kindly. Um, for people who are into that sort of thing, it can be a whole lot of fun. It's like the people who like to dress up as vampires out of Anne Rice's work. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, no, I, I wouldn't give wouldn't give it much credence. Okay. All right. Uh, while we're on that topic, another writer asks, uh, might as well comment on Lawrence Gardner. Oh, man. You're really getting me. I know. Um, these guys are giving us hard questions, so we don't want to pick on other people or, or get... No, we, we really don't. We don't want to start playing more. I agree. All right, so here's... And, a, here's uh, a, here's let's just say that footnotes that actually refer to books that exist would be a great help in Larry's case. All right, sounds great. Now, here, here's when we get away from that stuff. I want to go back to this this uh, uh, image, the Cairo. Mm -hmm. Because I wear the thing on my body, right, and... I remember a piece that you wrote, I'm not sure when, but maybe it was uh, uh, the Jed Pillar or uh, the, that particular one. But anyway, there was a reference to the actual city of Cairo. And I had always sort of thought, I wonder if, the, if that's just a coincidence, which I don't really believe in, or if this image, the combination of the Greek letter Chi and the Greek letter Rho, that we call the Cairo. Is that any way related to the city, to the town of Cairo, Egypt? Well, actually, it's, it, it is a coincidence, huh. but it's one of those coincidences that you can make a lot out of if you're trying to impart some information. Huh. In other words, Fulcanelli, in, in pointing us to Giza as a really significant place to observe the alignments that he's describing on the Hindu cross. And again, these are these are astronomical alignments. Right, these are things happening in the sky. Right. And he's very clever about it. He doesn't come right out and say, okay, you need to stand here and look at this. <laughs> Although he does say you need to stand in between the paws of the Sphinx in order to be aligned properly. Hmm, interesting. Like, okay, well, all right, let's, all right, let's figure this one out. In, in doing that, it, it, he used a very interesting word, which is keros, which is time, and it's the root of charismatic, it's mm. spirit, and, and he used it in a very entertaining way in a passage in Mysteries. And does it eventually m morph to Kronos or something? Or? Well, no, no. Um, Kronos is, is literal time, Kairos is sacred time. Okay. Um, and he's using it in a very specific way in a passage of Mysteries that points to Cairo, and he's making a pun in that, that weird passage about Cairo, the city, being connected to the great Cairo that is the alignment that's marked by Giza. Now, Fulcanelli was also the first person to say that the Sphinx was at least 10,000 years old. So um, he was definitely on to something. Yeah, now there's a... I mean, I've, I guess Robert Schock and some of these other guys were originally talking about this 10 years or so ago, but about the erosion patterns on the, the areas around the Sphinx, it looks like... Uh, 
might date and, differently than what we've been told. And long before any of those people got into it, long before Schwaller de Lubitz or anything, mm. there you have Full Canale back in 1929, you know, stating, oh, this thing is more than 10,000 years old. So the, the Cairo there is pretty much a pun that he's making to lead you to a very deep, but the right conclusion about Cairo and, and, uh, and Giza and so forth. Okay. What, what about Schwaller de Lubitz? You mentioned him. There, there are some people that say that he actually was Fulcanelli. Well, there's no doubt that Fulcanelli was part of the group that Schwaller de Lubitz absorbed an enormous amount of information from. Mm -hmm. um, there was quite a little group um, that was circling around in the early 20s uh, the group around Fulcanelli, or as we know him from other sources, uh, the Comte de Beaumont. I'm just giving you all sorts of exclusives tonight. I love these. Um, I love the, all the names because then we can just go and start looking into those. Well, the, the Comte de Beaumont was a real person who was a member of um, the Paris Golden Dawn. Mm -hmm. um, he was held in uh, quite, quite a bit of respect. And he actually knew all these people, Schwaller de Lubitz, Champagne, um, yeah, and, and the the next level, the Curies and uh, the Lasops, the people that built the Suez Canal. Mm. So wow. He, he's one of these um, very interesting points. And again, he may be Archduke Johann in a different identity. Mm. Whoever Fulcanelli was, whoever the Comte de Beaumont was, he had access to any royal noble house in Europe that he wanted to go visit. Amazing. So that, that sort of points in that direction. All right. But yes, the Cairo is an amazing symbol because, like I said, it does point to how you align yourself properly in space-time. Yeah, because, I mean, just the image itself is sort of an image of three-dimensional space. You have the six right. directions, and you can, you, can, you can draw the cube from it and all that. That's right. Hmm. And again, the loop on, on, on the, the row, the yeah, what, what, looking thing. Yes, what, what, what's the significance of, of the, 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 the little flag at the top of the P? Well, that's just the way the, the row is written in Greek. Mm -hmm. But if you see it as a symbol, it's pulled up a little bit and magnified. Mm. And the reason for that is the tail of the dragon in Draco. Our north pole of our planet points to the pole star at this era. But over time, over 26,000 years, it will either have a, a star or it won't have a star, depending on where the pole is pointing to mm -hmm. in the processional cycle. Right, right, right. Um, uh, quite a while ago, it was Alpha Draconis. The center point of that is the ecliptic pole, the north pole of the band that is the zodiac, the ecliptic of the sun. And that's right in the middle of the constellation Draco. Hmm. So if you think of the processional egg, that our, the movement of the pole star, the, the spot right above the north pole of our planet makes, right. then Draco is a serpent or a dragon that's clutching this egg. Wow which was one of the major Gnostic symbols, the, mm. the serpent wrapped around the egg. <laughs> and that's just a, a clear indication of the same thing that the Cairo is indicating. Right. Locating yourself in the cube, and then above the cube, as the Bahir says, mm -hmm. there's the, the great dragon. Amazing, Vincent. Wow. All right, well, look, uh, it's about that time. So. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, thank you for, for spending the time with us. It's, uh, it's nearly 3 o'clock in the morning there, so... Uh, gosh, I, I, the time always goes fast, and we'll, we'll definitely have to do it again, all right? No problem. All right, Vincent Bridges, everybody. Say thanks, and uh, Vince will be in touch. Thanks again, okay, man? No problem. See all you. Right. Great. We can find uh, information about Vincent on the web at www.vincentbridges.com.
dot com and uh, from here on out and uh, always you'll be able to hear this program and the previous show that Vincent and I did in October of 2005 those are uh, available on the archives page at my website at mikehagan.com and I'll have this show up in um, 24 hours or so alright so anyway thanks to everybody who's been listening either locally and regionally here to KOPN or on the web via CosmicWavesRadio.com. I appreciate everybody that's made this all happen, and we'll come back to you next week. I'm not sure what we're going to do. We're going to do um, uh, perhaps Walter Cruttenden. I'm not sure if, uh, if we can put it together that quickly, but if not, we'll come up with something surprising. All right? So join us next week. Same time, same place, all right? KOPN Columbia, it's Radio Orbit, Mike Hagan, and one more time on the web at MikeHagan.com. Thanks to everybody for listening, and uh, one more time for Vincent Bridges for spending the night with us and doing uh, wonderful work like he's been doing for a long time. All right, we'll finish things off with the Wimshurst Machine. One more from them. This is called, appropriately, The Alchemist, The Philosopher's Stone. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. Goodbye.